0: This week, we welcome back Marcelo Salvati. He's a security analyst at our sponsor, of course, Black Hills Information Security. He's going to give us some updates on his post exploitation tool, Silent Trinity. Shh, 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 silent. In the second interview, we welcome Steve Brown. He's the keynote speaker at Secure World Boston 2019, and he'll be discussing his talk all about building your strategic roadmap for the next wave of digital transformation. In the security news, password managers are leaking data in memory, security analysts are only human, Splunk changes uh, changes position of Russian customers, Google admits error over a hidden, air quotes, hidden mic- microphone, and a nasty code execution bug in WinRAR that threatened millions of users for 14 years. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at NetSparker.com or email at contact at NetSparker.com. Organizations' internal networks are overly permissive and can't distinguish trusted from untrusted applications. Attackers abuse this condition to move laterally through networks, bypassing address-based controls to spread malware. Edgewise abstracts security policies away from traditional network controls that rely on IP addresses, ports, and protocols, and instead ties controls directly to applications. Edgewise allows organizations to analyze the network attack surface and segment workloads based on the software and how it's communicated. Edgewise monitors applications and protects data paths using zero-trust segmentation. Visit edgewise.net forward slash securityweekly to get your free month of visibility. Some restrictions apply. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then Gravwell is the solution for you. Gravwell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. Gravwell lets your security team go beyond the sim and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to gravwell.io forward security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today.
1: And welcome to the show, but first, let me introduce you to a man who is a fan of lots of things, including tacos on Tuesday, Mr. Paul Sadorian.
0: Welcome to Paul's Security Weekly. This is episode 595. We're recording on February 21st, 2019. We are in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, and by we, I mean myself and Mm -hmm. the illustrious Larry Pesce. Yes, yes, yes I am. Talking about our network woes, yeah. we did, both did some recabling lately. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Mine, my, mine, because I ripped out the floor in of my office and put new ones in, and went looked under my desk and went, "What the hell happened?"
0: Right, like physical infrastructure is still a thing. I feel like yeah. we get caught up in talking about cloud and. Containers, mm-hmm. and serverless, and all that stuff, but like, there's still like you still have a computer, then right? And power, and, uh, and, and DNS servers. I mean, those are important. Yep.
1: <laughs> and like maybe cables to your monitor if you use those. Yes. And, uh,
0: still, that stuff is yeah.
1: UPSs, mm-hmm. power strips.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Welcome to my world. And, and, yep. On the lines the remotely, we we've got Lee Neely who wants to comment on physical infrastructure. Welcome, Lee.
2: Hey, good to be here from uh, from snowy Idaho. And uh, you know, don't forget while you're setting up your computer infrastructure, to have your your zombie defenses ready as well. Uh-huh.
0: It's very important. Like your
2: chainsaw. Wait. Attenuation by chainsaw. What?
0: And fire extinguishers <laughs> by the exit. Very important, so you can escape. Ah, uh, yes, yes. My HVAC guy he walked in. And he's like, well, you got a fire extinguisher? That's great. He's like, but it's like in the corner over there. He's like, how well, how how is that gonna work? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like. Oh, yeah, that's why they're at the exits. It's important. Uh, also on the lines, from the massage parlor, Mr. Jason Wood is here with us. Jason, welcome.
3: Hey, good to be back with everybody again.
0: Yes, nice to have you, my friend. Uh, also uh, from the, the wine cellar, I guess, drinking a martini, Mr. Matt Alderman is here. Matt, welcome.
3: It, it's a Manhattan. Manhattan,
0: I was going to say, once I saw the color, I didn't see the color, I just saw the glass. Yeah,
3: yeah. No dirty martinis until next week when I'm back in studio. But oh, sweet um, tonight.
0: Nice, nice. I love dirty martinis. Uh, is there
3: that's is there anyone else?
0: That's Joff. A, that's I was going to say a, there's someone not the on the screen. Dirty. Yes, we, <laughs> we Speaking a of spe- speaking of dirty. Speaking of dirty, Mr. Joff Dyer is here with us. That's a great segue, Larry. Right? Wow, what an
3: intro. He was going to totally leave me out um so uh, it was dirty vespa that was what i was thinking of. oh yeah those are good too those are hard to make
0: that's a very i find a very difficult cocktail to get right when you get it right it's very rewarding uh getting it right is take some trial and error and if you don't get it right it's really bad like it tastes horrible
4: (laughs)
3: yeah i've made Uh, some bad ones when you when you do get it right, you go running around downtown Boston telling everybody the new Joff Me Off recipe <laughs> okay, with Tony Fasper.
0: We need to bring some of those cocktails back. Mm-hmm. We, we all do have cocktails named after us, most of us anyway. All righty. Uh, RSA Conference, of course. Uh, I know RSA is getting closer when I look at my inbox. It is just flooded with all kinds of requests to events. And uh, briefings and talks and announcements, all kinds of stuff happening uh, at RSA. Of course, March 4th through the 8th, you can go to rsaconference.com forward slash securityweekly-us19, register using our discount code 5U9SWFD, that's five uniform, that's Fiverr Uniform Niner Sierra Whiskey Foxtrot Delta, get you $100 off the conference passed you can also book a briefing with us at rsa or infosec world uh i think even black hat is up there if you really want to get ahead of it but all you have to do is go to securityweekly.com forward slash conference request there you can request a free briefing with us matt and i have a long list of briefings to start going through and picking and choosing which ones, as not all are accepted, it's based on the discretion of uh, the host-slash-analysts that uh, are attending. In RSA, it's going to be Matt Alderman and myself. You can also book a paid interview as well, and those will air on Enterprise Security Weekly, which is a great opportunity if you're one of the thousand vendors that are attending RSA, and you want the security community to actually hear what problems you solve and how you do it, uh, an interview with us is a good thing to do.
3: Securityweekly.com forward slash conference request. Hey, Paul. Yes. Uh, I think we're close to ninety, and we're closing down submissions on Friday at three o'clock Eastern. Gotcha. So that's tomorrow at three Eastern time. Gotcha.
0: So get in, get in while you still can. Marcelo is here with us. He returns uh, to the show. He is a security analyst, a security consultant, rather, for Black Hills Information Security. Uh, Of course, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash B-H-I-S. That's securityweekly.com forward slash B-H-I-S. And that will take you to their landing page where we're going to archive all of the technical segments, include extra little tidbits of content and cheat sheets and slides and all kinds of goodies there at securityweekly.com forward slash B-H-I-S. Marcelo, you're back this evening to talk about Silent Trinity, which is an ironic statement in and of itself, but you're here nonetheless to talk about it. See? He's silent. <laughs> See? Yeah, <that's> awesome, <laughs> <All right. laughs>
5: <laughs> and I, uh, no. stroller, microphone, there it is. <laughs> I did it. Right. Yes, not anymore silent. Yes, I'm back and I'm, I'm glad to be back.
0: So Marcelo, I, we, we've received a lot of great feedback about your previous segment. Um, Security Weekly listeners can, can go back and listen uh, to where you described that. Uh, go to the, uh, the landing page and we'll have links there, uh, securityweekly.com slash bhis. That way you just have to remember one URL uh, and you can check out Silent Trinity. I have to say that when I talk about the techniques that you have implemented in that project Marcelo, a lot of the security vendors that are providing defensive tools um, you know, it's an interesting conversation. I don't want to say there's no coverage, right? But it sparks very interesting conversations about how security tools are being implemented. More importantly, how they're being configured today.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully this time around um, I'll do a much better job at explaining like how the tool works in general. Uh, I've sort of been learning C# along the way as well. So when I was first on here, there were some things about C# and the way um, like Silent Trinity did things that I didn't even completely understand because I wasn't really looking into the lower level aspects of .NET. So this time around, hopefully, it's my chance of redemption. So I'll hopefully um, be explaining things a lot better and hopefully by, by the end of this any, everyone will have an understanding of like how the tool works and we'll, we'll also be covering some detection mechanisms as well that I've, I've recently discovered sweet let's get right into it awesome okay so uh, I'm gonna share my screen here real quick if I can find the button this is,
0: for you this is where us hosts are supposed to fill time Yes, exactly. Mm, who's Phil? Phil? Phil. McCracken? He's a, oh. he's a good good, he's friend a good friend of mine, yeah. Phil. Irish yeah. cousin. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> and, and Pat also. It's my other Irish cousin. Pat McCracken? McGroy. Oh, Pat McCracken. They're cousins. Okay. They're
1: gotcha. cousins, Larry. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Oh, I mean, it's Ireland, so they could have been brothers.
0: <laughs> 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 I think Marcelo has figured out how to share his screen, thankfully. Oh. <laughs> Wait.
5: Uh, okay, well, we'll just do it like this. Okay, so um, before we start uh, delving into like how the tool works, we sort of have to all be on the same page of some key .NET framework concepts, uh, just because it to completely understand the way Iron Python talks to .NET and everything, we have to understand like, how .NET framework actually works, right? So uh, we have the .NET framework, which is just a set of libraries and uh, engines that allow Microsoft, or really anybody, to build a programming language on top of the framework itself, right? Uh, We also have a bunch of languages that Microsoft officially supports, so .NET languages that Microsoft officially supports. So a perfect example of this is C-sharp, PowerShell, VB.NET, F-sharp, and uh, a lot of others that I probably missed. So these are .NET languages. So these are officially-supported .NET languages built on top of the Microsoft .NET framework. The thing is, there are also a bunch of third-party uh, .NET languages, such as Iron Python, Bulang, which is somewhat of a more like a little bit lesser-known um, .NET language, Iron Ruby, and actually a recent one that I've just discovered is JavaScript.NET. Now that I've been looking into this area, I, I seem to be able to find a new .NET language almost every other day. Um, so, like as the name would imply, like Iron Python is just like a Python implementation on top of the .NET framework. Wulang is so, just like a. Marcelo
0: .NET is has been around for a really long time. It was uh, some vulnerabilities, I think, early on in Microsoft's time with it. But it is essentially allows you to take a language and make it so that you can write a web application with it. Right? Is that the purpose of the framework?
5: Well. Th- so not necessarily. So it, it can do that too, but I think at its core, um, what it's meant to do is just provide an abstraction layer for people to build programming languages on top of.
0: I got so, you. Like, so not necessarily web enabled, but any yeah, yeah, like okay.
5: actual languages. So like it provides just like a set of libraries and APIs and and engines. This is like a really high level. Yeah. Like I'm puncturing this explanation, but like this, this it's essentially just like a way of abstracting. A bunch of stuff so that people can easily implement languages on top of. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and, and so one of the one of the key implications of this is that since the all of these languages are built on top of the same framework, uh, they are all interoperable with each other.
0: Well, that's interesting. So, like each language has a set of libraries. I'm, I'm getting an, an echo from you, Marcelo. But each language has a set of libraries that basically hook it into the .NET framework so that they can do Windows stuff or web stuff if that's the application, right?
5: Yes, yeah, that's correct. But I think in, in this particular case, um, Silent Trinity, from Silent Trinity's perspective, the tool that I'll be downloading, uh, the more interesting implication of this is that all of them are interoperable with each other, which means that you can embed these languages within one another and things will just work. So, yeah, so
0: you could embed multiple libraries from multiple different languages to in, install, put that in one binary, and then when it runs, you have all that functionality.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and the, from like an offensive perspective, doing this, like, so the reason why PowerShell was such a rage, uh, and still is to a certain extent, is that um, it provided a, so PowerShell was built into every Windows operating system by default, and it was a scripted interface to .NET. So like, operationally, from, like, a offensive, from an offensive Red Team and pen-testing perspective, that's sort of like the holy grail because you have uh, all of the power of the .NET Framework, which allows you to go as high as you want, as low as you want, and allows you to do all the good stuff that as pen- pen-testers like doing or Red Team like doing, like injecting shell code and reflectively loading uh, portable executables, that kind of thing, right? And it was a scripted interface to it. so. You could take advantage of all of the advantages that uh, a scripting languages has, like refl- its reflective ba- like its reflective properties and all that stuff, um, by default on Windows. Now, the problem is everyone started abusing this, right? And Microsoft, at a certain point, said, "Okay, I'm going to put a stop to all of this," and um, implemented a bunch of defenses in the PowerShell runtime. Now, the Another another key concept to understand is that these defenses like AMSI, script block logging, uh, transcription logging, like uh, constrained language mode, all of these defenses are only built in the PowerShell runtime, as of right now. Okay, as of right now, they are only built into the PowerShell runtime. They are not built into the underlying framework itself, okay? So what that means is that in order to bypass all of those defenses, all you really need to do is just jump language is just change .net language. So this is why you see, you see all of these tools coming out recently built in C sharp, right? Because it like people have just started saying screw all this. I'm, I don't want to I don't want to deal with any of these defenses. I'm just going to just code everything in C sharp because you can still interact the .net framework that way uh, and not worry about any of the defenses that PowerShell has in place. And the thing is, also, is that since, uh, since like you can do that with C sharp, and they're all based on the same framework, you can do that with Iron Python. You can do that with Iron Ruby. And the advantage of doing this with Iron Python is that it's a scripting language as opposed to a uh, compiled language. So w- operationally, like C sharp has a bunch of things that you have to take into consideration. You have to keep compiling stuff over the time. There's like a there's a huge ho- overhead in setting up development environment. So like it's it's great from some aspects, but like a scripting language just makes things a lot easier. And this is really that the uh, at the core at the, the core concept that Sound Trinity uses is because all of these languages are interoperable with each other. You can embed Iron Python within C Sharp. You can embed Iron Python within PowerShell. You can embed Iron Ruby within BooLang within PowerShell within C Sharp. Like you can do crazy stuff like this. And incredibly enough, like this is basically what we've been doing for a long time. Like this isn't something new. It's sort of like a new spin on something that we've been doing for a long time because we've been doing this.
0: Marcelo. So you can write some iron Ruby that interfaces with.net and inside of your iron Ruby, you can call iron Python. Yes,
5: technically. Yes, you can. You have to deal with, some dependencies issue with like some uh, assembly resolving issues, which we won't get into because that's that's like beyond the scope of this. But um, and I actually Black Hills actually did an awesome webinar about this last week. I did a webinar about this last week that dived a little bit into the technical details of how to actually do this. So definitely, if like the listen uh, the viewers are interested in uh, the more of the little technical aspects, then you can definitely go see that. And hopefully, by the time this airs, it should be on our YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, so essentially, that's basically it. So you can embed Iron Python within PowerShell, and it'll work. You can also like do all this crazy stuff. So like the, the Silent Trinity Stager, PowerShell Stager, has a is a PowerShell script that embeds a sheet, a C sharp executable that itself that the C sharp executable embeds an Iron Python engine. So it's like three layers deep of embedding. Right. And it, it just keeps going on like that. And we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, we've been doing this in, in tools like Powerline or not PowerShell NPS. So it's just a C-sharp binary, right, that embeds the PowerShell runtime. So it's you can just embed the PowerShell runtime within a C-sharp binary. You can do the reverse. You can copy and paste C-sharp code, paste it in a PowerShell script, and call this magic add type function that just allows you to call all of the code that you put into that C-sharp class. Now, in Marcelo,
0: in, in embedding these languages via .NET, um, uh, how does that give you an advantage of evading detection?
5: Well, th- this, is the, this is the thing, right? So, all of the defenses right now are concentrated in the PowerShell runtime, okay? They're not built into the underlying .NET framework. So, in order to, to come, and there are no optics built into the .NET framework itself. So, like, the underlying framework doesn't have any optics built into it to allow, like, EDR solutions or really anything to hook into it and like see if any malicious code is running. It's just not that there isn't a way of doing that right now, with the exception of like some really hacky ways of doing things, like ETW, which we'll get into a little bit um, if we have time. But like th- there aren't any uh, things, there aren't any APIs or optics in place to allow security solutions to hook into the underlying framework. Right now, all of the defenses are built into the actual PowerShell runtime. Mm. So the minute you switch .NET language, you're bypassing all of the defenses that are built into the PowerShell runtime because you're talking to .NET through another language, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. That's interesting. So we've been doing this for a long time uh, with PowerShell and c but you can do this with Iron Python and c And that's exactly what Silent Trinity does. So at the core, of what's of Silent Trinity is the is the C# stager, which essentially just takes an Iron Python engine, uh, adds some like magic sauce to it, so that um, you can run an Iron Python script natively on Windows without actually installing Iron Python, because obviously that would probably that would be like a, a big downside to it if you had to actually install Iron Python. So it adds some magic to like the C# stager and embeds an Iron Python engine, right? And that's exactly what Silent Trinity does. Now, um, before, like, when I released this at DerbyCon, it was sort of like a proof concept code. Um, I called it beerware, and it was essentially that for a long time. Um, Recently, I had finally had the time to actually add stuff that would make it operational. Like, you could actually use it on a gig now, which is kind of cool. So first off, like, the the entire C2 communication is encrypted. So like the staging process and the C2 communication are are all encrypted using elliptic curve, Diffie-Hillman key exchange. Um, So it uses public key exchange, it derives a shared key, all that, everything's encrypted, so that's great. It also includes BooLang support. So BooLang is another one of those .NET languages. The problem with using Iron Python within a C sharp binary is that unfortunately has a very key limitation, which is you can't call low-level Win32 APIs unless you embed the standard library with it. Um, Unfortunately, the standard library is like eight megabytes. So you'd basically have like a a C sharp binary which would be like nine megabytes that you'd have to drop on disk, which is not ideal. Um, So the way around that is just to implement is just to embed another language that has built-in support for that. So that's where Boolang comes in. So Boolang allows you to basically just import native functions inside, dynamically import native functions, uh, through Boolang itself through an embedded C binary. Just, it, it just keeps it's like engine inception. It just keeps it just keeps going like this. Um, also the Clyde tab completes all the things now because when you get a session back, you get this long string which kind of sucks if you have to sort of type it all the time. Uh, And you can customize the check-in interval that the sessions check in to and there's also now a help menu function Which kind of comes in handy if you're using it for the first time So I'm gonna demo this real quick and um, Let's see if I can Is my am I still showing the slides you are? Okay, let's see if I can change that
3: This is where we invoke Phil again
5: Yep,
0: definitely. Uh huh. good buddy, Phil. <laughs> <sighs> no, what do you think, Larry? I don't I know. I are you using
5: this on Pentest yet? I have not. <clears throat> okay, I stopped the share.
0: We
1: got Let's the echo the going
5: share. again, too. Huh? I'm looking uh, at this and thinking, uh, what, what are reason. the likelihoods okay. of this okay. stopping working?
1: Okay,
5: there you go. Okay, so now you should see my screen. Yes, we can. Yeah,
1: hell yeah, brother. Sweet.
4: yay, Phil. <laughs> and let's
5: see if I can make this bigger. Okay, clear all that out. That's not. Don't don't look at that. Stop. Okay, there you go. Perfect. All right. Um. I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, once you download on Trinity, you just install it using a this like as you always would with like a standard Python uh, program. Um, it's got uh, the concept, you know, like resource Metasploit resource files. You could just like put CLI commands on each line of a file. Mm-hmm. So it does that as well. So you got I just have a little file here that just goes to the listener menu, starts a, mo- a uh, listener up, HTTPS listener up. And just goes over to the module menu. So that's that's essentially what that does. And ooh, don't ask again. This is interesting. Okay. I don't know what that is. Um, okay. So I'm just gonna start Sound Trinity up, and I'm just gonna give it that resource file. And the font is really huge here, so it's not gonna look as pretty as it does. But uh, we start a listener. Then we're good to go. Now um, once we do that, there are a bunch of stagers that we can use now. So um, originally there was just like the MS build and mimic stager. Now there's the PowerShell stager, uh, which you can use to like uh, get a stager through PowerShell as the name would imply. I'm just gonna use the MS build stager because it's, it's probably like the neatest one in terms of um, in terms of like its capabilities because it's also a whitelisting bypass and this was a, a a uh, method discovered by Subt. And the way you just generate the stager is really simply just with the generate command. And then you just give it a listener name. So uh, I need to actually use the stager first. And it, it does tab complete all things, which is great. And uh, we started a listener called HTTPS, so I'm just going to give it that. And there you go. So it generated our MS build stager, which is just an XML file that executes some sh- C-Sharp code, which starts the whole staging process. And I already copied that file already over here, just for because I don't trust demos. Um, and to start it up, all you really need is to copy and paste the command that the server gives you here. So copy and paste that into here, and I'm going to also make this very big.
0: We're old now,
5: Marcelo. We need big fonts. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, we, we all need big fonts. <laughs> and there you go. So now we're ready to go. We just do that. And it does its thing. Now, just to unpack what happened here a bit from the output, um, the MS Build Stager already contained like, the URL that you need to call back to. So like, you really just need to execute that command. Once it does that, it performs the key exchange, it derives a key, it downloads the encrypted zip file. Uh, because Iron Python and BooLang require some DLLs that are not installed on Windows by default, it needs to resolve those somehow. Those, zip, those DLL files are in the zip file that it downloads, so it just automatically resolves those from the zip file, and then it starts a Python file Within the zip file, also, which is the actual main stager logic. This and Marcelo, is really, it,
0: it does all that in memory, right? These DLLs are loaded into memory, not on disk.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is mm-hmm. all in memory, um, and we're gonna. It, it, there's some actual some downsides to that when you're talking about .NET stuff, and we'll talk about that after. Like I just show you some uh, some modules. So once we uh, get this a stager going. We got a new session, and from there we could just go over to the sessions menu, and we got a. Uh, we can just list them out. Uh, this is somewhat new. You can actually get like a lot of information. Like so, when it, the the uh, session actually calls back, it just gives you a bunch of information. So like, it, if you're used to Empire or Metasploit, it's similar to that, uh, and it gives you sort of, like process information, domain, all that stuff. Um, And then you can actually run modules. Now, with the new update, since it integrates BooLang, there are now Iron Python modules and BooLang modules, which is really cool, because now you can um, interact with low-level Win32 APIs, such as like um, mini-dump, write-dump, so like the the mini-dump command here. I'm going to show you that in a second. That essentially just um, creates a Process a memory dump of the LSS process to disk, plain and simple. And this is useful for like getting around some Mimikatz limitations, or uh, just like for more AV evasion. Um, so like, uh, let's let's for example, let's execute like a a sh- the shell command. How about that? So you go over to sessions, mo- uh, the uh, shell module, set the command to. So like uh, a stupid example, like who am I slash groups? How about that? Okay. So we got that, and then uh, this is where the auto completion comes in handy because you you previously had to type out this long string, which is not ideal. So now you just give it the first. String and just auto completes for you, which is fantastic. Nice. And there you go. So, um, it sent down a Python file which contained all of the logic to actually start a process up, get the output, and send it back. And after it does that, it just sends it back and it decrypts the output. And there you go. So that's the the output of the just the whoami slash groups command. Uh, but now, since we have um, a-
0: Marcelo, those. D- those commands are still run like on the domain. Like if you're monitoring Active Directory, you're even though programmatically it happened very different on the host than normal in Active Directory, you're still seeing that someone queried a group or whatever.
5: Uh, yeah, 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 well, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly, absolutely, definitely. Um, this is this right now is just running the whoami command. But like if you did something like net view or net user slash domain or whatever, um, yeah, definitely. Like you would still see that query happening. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, you can you can do like uh, a lot more interesting stuff because you have access to uh, all of the capabilities that PowerShell would have, right? So like you can inject mimi for example, um, or let's try how about internal monologue? How about that? And I think I showed this last time too, but it's it's ju- it's just such a cool attack that um, it'd be worth showing again. So internal monologue basically just grabs the net ntlm v1 or v2 hash, depending on if you're admin or not, of the current user, or of every user um, logged into the machine, If depending if you're admin or not. So once we got that, tell it to run. And there you go. So that's, that's actually... I'm not running in an elevated process, so I'm actually going to start up a new one running in an elevated process, so I can show you Mimikatz now. But that is my Net NTLMv2 hash. And uh, before I, yeah, let's just start up PowerShell here as administrator. And this is, by the way, like I'm I'm running this with Windows Defender on. Uh, let's go over to Virus Threat Protection settings. So the only thing turned off is automatic sample submission because I really don't want. Uh, my malware being sent to Microsoft. So, and this is really small again.
4: That's what she said. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry.
6: <clears> oh.
1: <throat> That's also what she said. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. If you're playing along at home, that's two. That's what she said in this episode. In the se- so yeah, there you go. Maybe three, you might have one <laughs> in the beginning of the show.
5: So now we got another session here, hopefully. Yes, there you go. So we got another session here that's running in a high integrity context. It's sort of like Empire, like it'll put an asterisk if it is running in a high integrity context, uh, context next to the username here. So that's um, that comes in handy. So let's head over to the MimiCats module here. Uh, I use MimiCats. And run that. And we're not, oh, yeah, that's because I didn't run it on the right session. That helps. Oh, man, demos. Yes. I mean, live demos are always great because you run into this stuff. And there you go. So now we run MimiCats on the machine. Um, and as you probably noticed, like Defender didn't crap his pants because it didn't detect it at all. And we got all of the te- plain text passwords that we want. Now, um, one thing to note here is that if you run the PowerShell stager, Windows Defender now just detects, so like if you if you touch LSAS in any way from any PowerShell process, Windows Defender automatically flags that as a behavioral thing, as a heuristics uh, detection thing. So, um, you really have to take into consideration like what stager you use. The All the PowerShell stuff that's currently implemented in Silent Trinity is there just for posterity's sake and just to make things a little bit more convenient because Technically, by using PowerShell, you're sort of defeating the purpose of using this tool in the first place. So, there's that. Um, and you can also like now you can also like inject shell code, do a bunch of stuff um, with WinRM, which I'm actually sort of still working out the bugs there. Uh, but technically, like you can use that to move laterally with PowerShell remoting. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I, I'd, I'd like to see implemented in here, in here as well. Also, if you're like familiar with the execute assembly, uh, the execute assembly command in Cobalt Strike, that's essentially what um, this does. It just runs a .NET assembly. And again, this is all possible because like all of these languages are interoperable with each other. Because you can run C# Sharp within Iron Python, within PowerShell, you can do all of that good stuff. Um, and just to show you, I guess like a visual so I'm gonna run the mouse shaker module in, in BooLang. It's a BooLang module that just shakes your mouse because why not?
3: Everybody needs their mouse shaking.
5: Yeah. And also I'm sort of preparing for uh, RMCCDC. So I'm running a bunch of troll modules for this just so I can completely wreck everybody.
0: This is a great CCDC mm-hmm. set of episodes. <clears throat> Yeah, shaking okay. the mouse could that could really suck.
1: Yep, and just remember, yeah. just wipe their their VMs and uh, install Red Star. <laughs> what is Red Star? That's the the official Chinese Linux. Distribution. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Or was it North Korean? China? Something like One that. It was North
5: Korea, like, I think. Look like, like, like at yeah. yeah. his mouse pointer, guy. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. So now you got the mouse shaking. And again, this is possible because, like, with Bulang, yeah, you can. Uh, inject like really, you can uh, call low-level Win32 API calls. Uh, just like it's like the DLL import, familiar with C sharp. It's it could be equivalent of like the DLL import attribute um, that you can use in C sharp.
3: Now, are there any issues? So I did some testing on this using uh, Command.exe as well, as PowerShell, mm-hmm. and found yeah. that it worked pretty well for things like Mimi Cats and whatnot. if you run into Some of these modules that would not work unless they're run inside of powershell.exe
5: yeah so okay so right now um so the way silent trinity resolves the assemblies needed to do everything there's actually a bug in in this version uh i actually i fixed it but i just have to still work out some kinks uh there's a bug in the version on github that uh, fails to resolve some powershell related assemblies um so, like, if you try to run like the PowerShell module right now, it won't work because it it just says like I can't find the PowerShell module, the PowerShell assembly that I need, so it just craps out. Um, but I fixed that; I got it working. The thing is, I also want to implement uh, the functionality of running Iron Python engines within that different .NET app domains. And what I mean by that, if you're not familiar with C#, I'm going to show you that right now because I think it's pretty interesting. So let me. Minimize all of this. So let's take a look at Process Explorer here. So, whenever you start a process that uh, uses .NET in any way, uh, you automatically load a default app domain. So, an app domain you can think of the app an app domain just like a box. Um, whenever uh, you try to load any sort of .NET assembly slash DLL. Uh, .NET automatically puts those DLLs inside that box, so that for like performance reasons, because otherwise you'd have to keep like calling, referencing the assembly on disk all the time, so it would just like be an enormous impact. Um, so it automatically puts them in an app domain, and you can query if you have administrator rights, you can query um, that app domain for all of the loaded assemblies. And this is sort of a detection mechanism right now, because uh, through stuff like etw which is event tracing for windows or through like some powershell scripts that have been put out recently um, you can actually go and query for these loaded assemblies I don't know if this is I don't know if there's a way of making this bigger unfortunately but um, you, in this if you click on the process in which silent Trinity is running right now you'll see like the actual name silent Trinity the assembly that's loaded you'll see like a bunch of uh, you'll, see, you'll see, like the sharpsploit library, which is what San Trinity uses to load Mimi Cats, and a bunch of the Iron Python assemblies as well. Now, this is sort of it, because there are no optics in .NET right now. Um, there really isn't a way, a good way of collecting this information at scale. So all of the stuff that can be used to like enumerate these assemblies in memory. Um, is sort of like it's it's like really hacky and like in a, it's not something that you can use in an organization. So like you can't collect this information at a scale. Um, so, and this is one of the detection mechanisms. The thing is also but like, like you can load an Iron Python engine within a separate app domain, technically I've run into a bunch of bugs trying to do this because this area of Iron Python has not been fleshed out as much as it needs to be. Um, and you can technically load Iron Python in a separate app domain. Which gets unloaded every time a module executes. So you wouldn't see like the Mimi Cats assembly being loaded. You wouldn't see uh, like the Silent Trinity assembly being loaded because it's just in a separate app domain and which gets completely destroyed and garbage collected after it executes. Hmm. So you basically only see the assemblies there running for as long as a module executes, and then it gets completely destroyed afterwards. And that's just one detection mechanism like there are a bunch of others like i think right now this is sort of the main one because so yeah like if we go back to the slides here so right now there because there isn't a lot of um of there aren't any these optics that we need in order for like security solutions to to actually dig into .NET framework and see what mali- if there's any malicious code running, right? Like, the, they're all of the solutions right now are sort of iffy at best. Like, the so .NET 4.8 does have AMSI integration, but it's in the really beta phase right now. Um, it has what what integration? AMSI. So like the same technology that sort of uh, tries to do uh, tries to detect malicious PowerShell scripts. Microsoft has started introducing that into the .NET framework itself, so the gotcha. underlying framework. Now, the problem with that is there's a bunch of problems with that. The first one, in my mind, is that, like, you... So say that .NET 4.8, when .NET 4.8 gets released, most Windows endpoints will still have .NET 4.5. So it's like, an, it's like a, the same thing that happened with PowerShell, right? Like, we, we were, everything was running on .NET 2.0 or 3.0, which didn't have .amsi, and then .NET 4.5 came along, and Windows 10 had .NET 4.5 by default. So unless Microsoft forces an update on all Windows 10 machines, which it could, knowing Microsoft, knowing Microsoft, that's definitely a possibility, um, organizations would have to manually go in and update the .NET version on every Windows machine, which, I mean, could break some stuff. I don't, I mean, technically, but I don't know. Uh, and plus, that's, I feel like that would be a lot of work, so, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of unknowns with that one. There's a lot of scripts that have been put out by manifestation in Io, uh, which work at SpecterOps. Uh, abusing ETW, which is like a low-level logging mechanism, which is basically the only way that we've found so far to detect this kind of stuff in real time. Um, Crabs ETW is, is essentially like a C++ wrapper on top of ETW. So if you want to build a tool, that collects the stuff. You you can build it in C but the level of effort with that is somewhat uh, pretty high. Um,
0: yeah, because there's basically also- any any program that's using the .NET framework is going to get logged by that fr- by that. Yeah, crab yeah
5: essentially. Yeah. yeah. So that's so that would be right now. The having uh, crabs right now at, at UW. <laughs> Yeah, which oh my god, yeah, don't even get started with that. Um, <laughs> having,
3: having crabs really would suck. Having crabs
5: would suck, yes. But <laughs> crabs. So this is this tool essentially is like is is a good starting point for like actually building something that an organization could use to detect this type of tradecraft. But again, like it's it's just like a building block. It's it's not a ready to use mm. thing. Um, so you have to build it yourself, which you know, I mean, it's possible for certain organizations, but I doubt a lot of people will be doing that. Yeah,
0: um, no, also, but then you, I mean, implementing it's one thing, Marcelo, and then parsing all the resulting logs. Yeah, exactly.
5: And there are, yeah, that's another thing, too. Like, you, you get like log, uh, okay, what's the technical term for it? Like, too many li- like, it, d- distinguishing, like, the, the actual signal from the noise, <laughs> right? right. Logs. Um, because a lot of things use .NET, like, a lot. Um, so, there's that as well plus there's like some code there's um, there's this blog post that I found from countercept which is a uh, MWR company which um, did a nice blog post on silent Trinity which has some of these detection mechanisms that I just um, talked about so that's and I guess it's an interesting thing to look at and Luke Jenning who also works at countercept did an awesome blue hat talk about uh, this kind of stuff in uh, his uh, memory resident implants code injection is alive and' talk which is something to look at. So like in terms of detection mechanisms, really, you have, you have the only, your only option as of right now is ETW. And e- using ETW, you can see like all of the assemblies being loaded in memory, in real time. But that is also a fragile detection mechanism because you're essentially triggering unknown malicious class names. So what you'll see with ETW, from at least my understanding of it, is just the actual class names of the libraries being loaded, so really all you need to do is that's just signature detection at that point. You just change the class name and you're good. Um, so there's that. Also, like not having an image backing when you look at assemblies being loaded, um, they're like you can tell straight off the bat which ones have been reflectively loaded in memory and which ones are not. So like having assemblies that don't have an image backing on disk. Um, is sort of an I like you can potentially use that as like a starting point for like an IOC. So like you have to combine multiple things together in order to really detect this right now.
0: Awesome, Marcelo. Uh, any uh, closing thoughts?
5: I that I don't think so. I really encourage though like people to look into .NET because it is freaking amazing. Like the the more I I learn about net just it just keeps blowing my mind
0: and our listeners can find out more at securityweekly.com forward slash b h i s securityweekly.com forward slash b h i s to get more information about this we'll post all of the relevant (coughs) materials uh and links to things on that page marcelo thank you for coming back to security weekly and uh telling us more about uh how silent trinity works It's pretty awesome stuff
5: Anytime. thank you for having me.
0: And with that, we will take a short break. Come back and bring in our next special guests. Stay tuned. Core mm-hmm. to the Future, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, go to recordedfuture.com forward slash securityweekly and sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily. Every day, you'll receive an email with the top results for trending technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Subscribe today and stay ahead of cyber attacks. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs. They're people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Quick announcement. Ocean is hosting the Rhode Island Cybersecurity Exchange Day on March 13th at the O'Hare Academic Building at South A. Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. Register now at ocean.org forward slash events. I will be speaking. Patrick, I believe, will be speaking as well. So if you want to come hang out with us here in Rhode Island, that's the time to do it. Thanks. If you're going to be in Boston or want to go to Boston for Secure World, they're hosting their 15th annual conference, March 27th through the 28th at the Heinz Convention Center. Security Weekly listeners will save $100 off a conference pass by visiting secureworldexpo.com and using the code Security Weekly. See, I like that because they don't have to do the whole... Yeah, yeah, uniform yeah. Niner finally, Sierra. Finally, a code <laughs> nice. that is like easy. Right? Security <laughs> Weekly Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Foxtrot. Uh, Steve is here with us. Uh, Steve Brown, he is the Secure World Boston keynote. He's a former futurist and chief evangelist at Intel Corporation. Uh, Steve is an energetic speaker, author, and strategist and advisor with over 30 years of experience in high tech. Speaking at events across the world, Steve helps his audiences understand the business and societal impacts of new technologies and how they will shape the future, 5, 10, 15, and maybe even more years from now. Steve, welcome to the show.
6: Thanks. Good to be here, Paul.
0: Nice to have you, my friend. So, how did you get started in like looking at technology and ultimately like keynoting security events and stuff?
6: It, good question. It probably started when I was about ten, um, which is forty-one years ago now. Um, I was lucky. Uh, I mean, kids who are ten now have been playing with computers since they were, you know, a lot smaller than ten. Uh, back in nineteen seventy seven when I first got my hands on a computer. Uh, my dad worked in the physics department and he had this amazing box that he brought home from work and I got to play with. So even at that early age, I figured out that they were going to change the world. And I wasn't quite sure how because I was 10. But uh, they, it struck me then that these machines were going to grow into something incredibly powerful. And and, and it, it was really that moment playing with this Commodore PET computer back in the day uh, that I became fascinated by the future, and I have been ever since. So did, long did career you think- path at Intel over 30 years, but uh, eventually ended up as one of Intel's two futurists.
0: Now, did you think that technology would bring us to the day where I'm going to tie physics into this, where my wife is looking at a post on Facebook, and it says, oh, due to the way the planets are positioned, you can take your broom, and it will stand up straight in your kitchen. <laughs> and I, I was like, I was like, told my wife I'm like you took physics you also have a technical job I'm like think about that and it was hard for her to like even overcome the fact like because it had come from a trusted person and so in right. everyone was still kind of insisting mm-hmm. or playing along with the joke so me being the party pooper that I am I did a quick google search found this awesome wired article that explains all of the theories of gravity (laughs) and and, and physics (laughs) and basically dispels that. It was actually really interesting. It talked about distance uh, and mass as it relates to gravitational pull uh, and very scientifically debunked the theory. And see, I just would have gone to Snopes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I actually found a very interesting article. So given some of the uh, kind of abuses and kind of like, oh, really, like that's what we're using technology for. Uh, Do you have comments on that and how you're observing technology uh, today, Steve?
6: Yeah, I mean, technology um, aside, I mean, we've always had people literally selling snake oil, right? People have always fallen for scams and will always fall for Mm. scams. And technology is neither good nor bad. It's kind of benign. It, I can split an atom to power a city or level a city. I can use my smartphone here to call my mum back in England and make her day. Or I could be at a restaurant with you guys and use it to ignore you. So it's how we choose to use technology that matters. And of course, there are always assholes in the world and they will always use technology to do nasty stuff. And in this case, the technology is, is being used to mislead people. And the sad news that I've got to bring to you as a futurist is it's going to get a lot worse because not only will we have trolls out there um, uh, spewing nonsense and misleading people and creating disinformation campaigns, but artificial intelligence is going to make it possible to create you know, uh, pretty believable misinformation. Um, you mean virtual,
0: you're talking about virtual trolls, Steve.
6: Yes. With the artificial AI intelligence. Controls. Wow. Huh. That's Augmented. Yeah, I mean, look, look at the work that open AI released last week. And there was an article in um, MIT Technology Review, and they've got a, an AI that will create prose, and sometimes it spews out nonsense because mm-hmm. this is early stages. Right. But it's able to write a news article, uh, which is, of course, not true, uh, but it can write it in a way that sounds like maybe a human wrote it.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: And that's where we're at today in 2019. As we head into the early 2020s, uh, this becomes quite worrying. I, and, and I I worry that, you know, <laughs> I speak a lot around the world and I always do Q&A, and the number one question is, is it going to take all our jobs away? Uh, number two question is, uh, is Skynet going to kill us, kill us all? And so a lot of people are really worried about the wrong things. Uh, You know, is Arnie going to drop through a hole from the future and and kill us? No. Um, Is AI going to metastasize and be used to create disinformation that leads us to kill ourselves? Maybe.
0: I I think we, and I I do this a lot myself because I'm a huge fan of science fiction. We have to remember that it is just that. It is. To a certain degree, mm. fiction. Although a lot of the things, especially Star Trek, y- yeah. has a, a good track record of uh, bringing fiction to reality. Correct, correct. I mean, not they themselves, but society sure, has, right. has has caught up to their science fiction. But when I watch, as a security person, when I watch science fiction, one of the things that goes through my mind is when I see people using all of this tech that is twenty-five to a hundred plus years in the future, the security concerns aren't really there. They're using the technology for the most part across all science fiction works with the understanding or assumption that it's secure. Do you think that's a a, a place that we're headed, Steve, or is this just Hollywood, for example, kind of writing out some of the more complicated things for us to think about so that we can focus on the story and the cool stuff?
6: Well, let's not disabuse us. I I don't think Hollywood does things to make us think. Hmm. Uh, Hollywood does things to make us thrilled, scared, um, create an emotional response that makes us hand over our $14 or whatever it is to go see a movie. And they do a great job of it. And I I would never criticize them for that. I love going to the movies like anybody else. I find it very entertaining. But it's, it's rare that a Hollywood movie uh, is going to make you really think a- about the implications of technology. There, there are a few exceptions. Her and, and other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. know, right. Television with
0: about. black. I'm sure with Black Mirror, Steve, you spent time. Black Mirror, yeah. great
6: example, right? That they really help us think about the potential dark sides of a technology, mm. um, and, and that's all good stuff. Um, utopian sci-fi is not very popular because it's boring. Yeah, you know, if Arnie dropped through hole from the future and said hello everybody how are you can I make a cup of tea you know that, that's I, I was trying to be as British as I could there um,
0: then <laughs> it worked good job you know it's not a very
6: interesting story but when he starts shooting up the place has a la Vista baby suddenly you've got a story and so as a futurist that's one of the things I do fight um, is that I'm trying to counterbalance mm-hmm. against this largely dystopian set of science fiction works out there and say yeah of course we need to worry about that but as a futurist, you ask two questions. The first one is, what's the future we want to build, and what's the future we want to avoid? And, and I think we spend a lot of time. And, and of course, your audience, you're know, pre-programmed to think about what's the future we want to avoid. That that's the business that you're in. And it's I'm so glad that you all are. Um, I'm trying to think also about what are the possibilities of the future. What what could we build? What kind of value could we create for people?
1: Mm. And what at what point? If any, does the future we want to build and the future we want to avoid collide?
6: Um, I mean, it, great question. That happens if we don't have a robust conversation about it. And I think it shouldn't just be a conversation that people like me have. Um, you know, I spend my time thinking about the world 5, 10, 15, sometimes beyond that, depends on uh, the client I'm working with. Um, and helping to stimulate that conversation with them. But this is a conversation that we as a society should be having. You know, there's always this interplay of culture and technology and one informs the other over time. Uh, you know, I, when I do my talks, I often will finish by saying, you know, I deputize you all as futurists now. You need to go out and start having these conversations uh, with your friends, with your family. What is the future that we want? Because... We're getting to a point, I mean, technology is moving so rapidly that it's not quite there yet, but you know, if you can imagine it, we will build it. And so what do we want? And, and it's it's not always a question that we stop and ask ourselves.
0: So I, I've, I've had this conversation, Stephen, I want to get your take on it. When we talk about Internet of Things security, right? Right. And we've been talking about this for some time, even before they called it the Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. But when I look at technology, and I'll use the home as an example, I think this could certainly apply to businesses as well, but in your home, there was one of the first technology breakthroughs that we have electricity, right? Mm-hmm. I think probably shortly thereafter, we had fire alarms and a standard for ways to monitor for smoke and fire in those precautions in our homes. Plumbing is the same way. We have modern plumbing and then safeguards and precautions as to how it's built into homes. When we add the Internet of Things to homes today, it's mostly an add-on that we're adding on afterwards from, and it it looks different, right? All the different technology we're trying to bring together in the home to make a Mm so-called smart home. You know, what happens when these technologies we're talking about that we're adding on today become standard in all of the homes and buildings and, and even businesses, much like Plumbing and electricity and the way we monitor for, for fire.
6: Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of this technology is being built for a price point, point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it's I can in my house here I can turn the lights off behind me with my voice. So I can uh, move my blinds up and down. You know, I, I've got some levels of automation in my house because I'm a futurist. I better, better <laughs> price point. Uh, but you know, th- this technology is not. It's deliberately it hit a price point. And if you're hitting a price point, maybe you're not either putting the components in that you need to be able to build security and end-to-end, or you're not spending the labor that's right. needed to have a security expert oversee it and make sure that you're doing a, a proper job of mm. thinking both about privacy and security. And so that's, it's a, it's a big risk. And as to your point, I think you're making, which is as this scales out and more and more people start to adopt this technology, not just bold futurists, we start to see it everywhere, then you start to create a um, an attack surface that's really attractive. Right. So the same way that you know people used to go after PCs for a long time because Macs didn't have uh, there weren't enough of them to make it worthwhile. Eventually we'll get to a point where there will be a common platform out there that will become attractive for people to go and attack.
0: And I think we've started to see that already, especially with televisions that I think as many of us in technology predicted, they're not just televisions anymore. They're Mm -hmm. actually small computers that have a screen that are attached to your wall. And my theory was that people would start caring about the security of things when something like their TV would start to display pop-up ads, right? To me, that's how it happened on the browser. People said, I need antivirus software because... I went to this porn site and now I'm on you know, two dozen porn sites and this is bad. I need some protection from that. I think our televisions are heading down the same route. We have seen some attacks. There's also been, you mentioned privacy, ways to break into the televisions and snoop on what people are watching or spy on the people through the cameras that are now in, in the television. So do you think there'll be drivers like that, Steve, that will help shape our future in a more secure manner and allow people to care? about the security of the things that maybe they haven't considered before, like a television?
6: Yeah, I mean, that's the question. Do we, are, we, are we frogs that slowly boil in water or is there, is there some incident or set of incidents that makes us go, hell no. Right. Um, you know, th- this week's revelation about cameras in, in nests... Yeah, uh, that's got some people's attention. Uh, oh yeah, the, it was the the microphones. We had a story about mm-hmm. that. The yeah. microphones. Sorry, are, it's, we're it's a off. microphone, not not a camera. Mm. Um, but the the idea that um, I can't hang on. I can't say her name. She's here listening. Oops. Okay, I've muted her. Now I can <laughs> I can say Voldemort's name. So uh, the Alexa case where Amazon <laughs> Echoes were, we're making random um, phone calls on people's behalves and, and recording sounds and sending them to their friends. And that was a bug and it was the same as a, as a butt dial, essentially, but it was a high-tech butt dial. Right. So those got people's attention. But I suspect that we will continue on this merry path until um, somebody gets really hurt. I, yeah. I, I think that's when it will be. I mean, we really all paid attention when the woman with a bike got hit by the Uber. Yeah, um, that that's when when life is threatened, uh, <clears throat> then people wake up. Mm-hmm. And I, but I feel like folks are making the decision
0: today to implement this technology. We talked Amazon Echo Services, right? That uh, and I, I speak to like a few different types of people about this technology, Steve. And you know, one is the camp of, oh, I would never have that in my house. Like it's too risky. Yep. In my assessment, they really don't understand why. Right. Then there's the people that will use the technology and they're like yeah that's like a nice to have and not really consider it like they would not have it but they're not you know they'll use it as a commodity function right and then you know there are the people like us who will implement it try and understand the security implications and use the the technology uh how do we educate all of the audiences so that we're on the same level of like we need to all understand it. Like just not using it without truly understanding why you're making that decision to me is an opportunity to, to educate and make people aware of some issues.
6: Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I have a job, right? Cause I get asked these questions all the time. Um, mm. you know, should, is it safe to have this kind of stuff in my home? What questions should I be asking? Um, I, maybe we need to go a little bit broader than that. Um, because the, the, we're talking, we're mixing two things here. We've been talking about privacy and we've been talking about security. Um, there is no kind of consumer standard that says, yeah, this is safe to use in your home. This right. has been passed. Uh, and somebody independently has tested it and decided that this meets some level of security standards. Right. Um, that ties I, I into privacy, though.
0: I think unknowingly on the person, they're fearful that the technology is not secure and therefore a bad actor is going to take over that technology and use it to invade their privacy. Right. Then there's the other side of that privacy coin, which we cover all the time, the Amazons and Googles right. and Apples of the world uh, basically violate your privacy, whether on purpose or sometimes on accident, uh, and, and that happens too.
6: Yeah, and I think people are starting to figure that out. I mean, it comes down to which brand do you trust right. and what's their business model. If you're Apple, you're in a business model of selling $1,000 plus shiny phones. If you are Facebook, you're in the business model of monetizing people's lives. And I think people are starting to recognize that pretty mm-hmm. closely now.
0: Absolutely.
3: Matt, so, anyone else? Lee? No, no,
6: no. I, I, just, yeah.
2: We, yeah. Um, I
3: mean, we
6: talked so what a, do you
2: a think? lot about
3: IoT, but there's, I mean, if we think about the next wave, right? IDC talks about the fourth platform. We're talking fifth, sixth, seventh platform here. What is you know? I, I'm a curmudgeon, so I don't use any of these IoT devices pretty much in my in my daily life because I don't trust trust them. But I mean, think about autonomous vehicles and, and machines. Think about uh, some of these other aspects that we're going to see in our lives. I mean, I, I'm a driver, right? I I want to I want to feel 600 horsepower under my feet. Some people are going to be like, yeah, no, let, let somebody drive me. I mean, there's a lot of other things here that are going to impact our life beyond just whether it's a nest, a thermostat, a ring doorbell, et cetera. I mean, there's there's broader implications of what's coming. I'm curious how those play into this um, future discussion.
6: Sure. Um, so, and this is what I'm going to talk about in the keynote I do at Secure World. Um it's to really get into what are the six technologies that are going to shape the next decade. I would argue that over the last four decades, there were four big technologies that businesses had to comprehend. The PC uh, revolution starting in 1981, um, the the advent of the web and having to open a new front door uh, for business on the web, um, the mobile revolution, and then cloud. Uh, You know, and, and that was, there were four big juicy things that, And you can argue little ones here and there, but those are the four big ones. We have six big ones coming in the next decade, so it is going to lead to unprecedented change in every business sector and in in the way we live our lives. And you're right, autonomous machines is is a big part of that. Um, Augmented augmented reality, artificial intelligence, uh, blockchain technology, uh, Internet of Things, five G networking, all of these are going to play together to allow us to reimagine the way every business operates. Now, there's a positive side to that, which is uh, being able to deliver services in new ways, being able to create new types of products, um, to service customers in new ways, all good stuff. and I can talk about that all day uh, and you know, it will help us to improve the productivity of agriculture. Uh, it will help us improve the quality of people's lives, improve people's but health. But Steve,
0: will it, will it get healthcare off of the fax machine? That's what I want to know.
6: <laughs> God, let's hope so. <laughs>
3: yeah, or or out of paper records for crying out loud. Yeah. Yeah.
6: <laughs> I'm going for my. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a man of a certain age, so I've got to have my checkup tomorrow, and uh, yeah, the amount of paperwork I still have to fill in. I was I was arguing with my wife last night, who works in healthcare, how ridiculous it all is. Anyway, mm. um, <laughs> to your point, I mean, we it wants a, a machine. When you take AI, you can use it to create a, a fancy algorithm. Once you put that inside a machine, uh, you give that machine autonomy. You give it the ability to have agency in the world. And what you're doing is taking a digital threat and making it physical. And so now, you instead of having you know, the risk of being hacked, having your identity exposed, having data, you know, important data, stolen, uh, now you have the ability to take a one-ton missile and hurl it into a group of nuns um, if they happen to be walking down the street. So it, it is a very different scenario once you start to to take digital intelligence and put it inside autonomous machines. And we are moving to a world of many, many millions of autonomous machines filling our lives.
0: What, what do nuns say when they're walking down the street and someone hurls a grenade at them? I feel like there's a joke in there somewhere, but I... I... <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Yes. I guess I I don't know. <laughs> uh,
3: Lee, go ahead, go ahead, go right? oh, ahead. Holy yeah. something, so, is, but I'm not quite sure what it is.
0: Hold on, hold on, Matt. Hold on, Lee, and then Matt.
2: Yeah. So in this future, we're we're, we're envisioning. Um, Steve, do you see a message that's not getting through, uh, as it were, a warning that people are 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 ignoring passively or aggressively? That's gonna, you know, that we we should be paying attention to,
6: or is it really the field's open and anything could happen? I, I think most people are busy living their lives, and it's going to be down to the people that listen to this um, podcast to take on that role and keep people safe, um, because people are busy bringing up children and taking them to sports games and getting them to work on time, they already have enough to think about. Uh, and I don't think anything, you know, asking earlier about, you know, can we educate people about this stuff? How do we get them to think about this stuff? Um, I, I don't think that's probably the right question to ask. It would be, it would be nice. It would be lovely if everybody uh, would think about this stuff. I just don't think it's realistic, which means it's going to fall upon um, unsung heroes, honestly, Um, the security people who work in every company in America to keep people safe and to ask the tough questions. And unfortunately, it's a little bit like, you know, I I see people who work in IT security as being kind of like nurses and teachers in that they are some of the most important people in our society. And we kind of know they're important, but we don't really, um, we don't really reward them enough. We don't really say thank you enough because, um, it is going to become an increasing challenge in the next decade, and we, we can get into that in a few minutes, but um, it, it is going to be something that security folk need to work hard at uh, because I don't think it's realistic to ask people to pay attention.
3: Yeah, in, to my point, right, this is where the consumer, I don't think, has the care or the expertise to worry about it, right? to your point, Steve, Yeah, we're busy, right? And we're going to use an app because it makes my life easier. I'm going to use mobile deposits. I'm going to, you know, use these different technologies, not thinking about the ramifications because I don't have time to think about the impacts to my life, my privacy, etc. And so I don't see this as a problem that the consumer really embraces and tries to, decide whether it's good or bad. I think it's companies who are rolling out these services to say, we've added layers of security in here to really make it secure for consumers to use so they don't have to think about it. And and I think that's the big challenge with this new evolution of technologies that we have to think about.
6: Yeah. And it comes down to a brand, right? How do you you choose something based on a brand that you trust. Brands are fundamentally all about trust. And so the technology companies that build products that you can trust, people will go back to over and over. And if you violate that trust, um, then people aren't going to come back. Or at least they'll give you maybe one chance and then it's all done.
3: And and where does transparency play into that level of trust? Because we've, we've had some conversations <clears throat> about Apple recently. Right with uh, the the FaceTime bug and not a lot of discussion about it, but fixes for it. Um, now they're getting sued for their two-factor authentication. Does transparency and in, in the ability to be a little more transparent play into that? Because Apple hasn't been very transparent, hmm. personally, in some of these uh, activities, because I think they're trying to build a level of trust. But I think transparency also builds a level of trust also. So I I think that's interesting.
6: Yeah, of course, transparency matters. And particularly when it comes to privacy, very often now we're giving up our data in return for some value, some service, some level of personalization. And there's a quid pro quo there. And so long as a brand is honest about, this is the data that I gather, this is what I do with it, this is the value I give you in return, this is what I how I keep the data, this is how I secure the data, then we, we're generally okay with it. Um, it's when it's not clear that that data has been gathered. It's when uh, it is used in a way that we might perceive as being used against us uh, that brands get into hot water.
3: Yeah. And, and obviously, we've seen the Facebook issues and some other things, right, which is why yeah. I don't have a Facebook account. But I mean, every, my wife still uses it today because it allows her to connect to family and, and keep everybody apprised. She doesn't care about the privacy concerns, but I do, so I don't use it, right? And I mean, that's the kind of level of trust we're talking about, I think, in the future with some of these technologies.
6: It's interesting to see how consumer behavior is changing and modifying um, to create defensive strategies against these companies. Though, you know, millennials get a lot of grief about you know not caring about their privacy and their data. They actually do; they're pretty aware, and you know they start to do things that um, they only share what they want Facebook to know or whatever social platform they're on. Um, they know that data is not ephemeral. That you know, if they give it to Snapchat, they're not deleting it all, right? They're smart enough to realise that, and they've started to create counter strategies to almost provide disinformation to these networks, or to provide very limited information so that it's not very useful to these networks.
4: I, yeah, I agree, why-
0: Steve. I think we see we saw a big shift in in social media, especially when we first started covering social media here on this show. Larry was, mm-hmm. was certainly here for that. Oh yeah, there was a lot of uh, people making some grave mistakes, and as security people, we were like, "Well, yeah, if you put it on the internet, right?" But I think, as Steve said, over time, they've, uh, people have gotten very savvy about you know what's largely because. There have been so many news stories and breaches and leaks and all. They've seen other people's personal data being abused in one way or another. And as Steve said, have gone through, I mean, very much hacker mindset to be able to use the social media technologies, right? If you're in junior high or high school, you're using a phone with these these technologies, um, but somehow protect their personal data as best they know how.
6: Yeah, and I I think because people are getting a little smarter on this stuff. Um, I'm hoping this will all sort itself out. Mm. Uh, There are other things that I worry about um, that as I look out through the next decade, you know, when you can spoof sensors, when you can um, use adversarial examples on an AI, uh, where you can use generation adversarial networks to... To create fake content um, and mislead people, um, and as we we're going to embed technology much more deeply in the workplace in the next decade, uh, and we're moving to an era where our team our teams will be teams of humans and non humans working together. So now we need to or, or think against about
0: each other, Stephen. In, in that respect, right? I mean, you talk about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. as being artificial trolls as an example, but also on the defensive realm we'll have artificial intelligence that will be able to detect the artificially intelligent trolls and there'll be a cat and mouse game like there usually is in security, right?
6: Oh yeah, we've got an arms race coming. I think it was Gartner said that by 2022, they predict that AI's ability to to spot and flag fake content mm-hmm. will be outstripped by AI's ability to create fake content. Interesting, mm-hmm. so yeah. There's a worrying date
0: right and in how accurate is that
6: right what, yeah mean, be yeah how, how you come up with that i don't know just uh, mm-hmm. me that's right yeah God yeah, yeah. Does, right? i mean and they do it very well uh but whether it's 2022 or 2025 or 2030 at some point that may happen uh in which case seeing no longer be, is believing
0: yeah i you know i, I find it interesting having been somewhat of a victim well being protected by some of that certainly would where we put our content but also being a victim of it and having our content wrongly categorized in such a way that our channel gets blocked or taken down and you know, we have to go through uh, a process w- what concerns me most i think about the future steve and in, in technology is who in in what organizations are going to control the content right and and so Today, and so, again, I've been a victim of this, right? So, as an example, I've got a cigar podcast. Facebook's rules state you can't take out ads that promote the sale of tobacco. When I try and take out an ad, every single time they kill it because they think we're selling tobacco. And I'm like, no, we just have a show that's talking about tobacco. tobacco right. And now we've seen this in many different cases, right? We've seen Tumblr's uh-huh. decision to restrict adult content. We've seen Reddit's decision to go the complete opposite way and allow everything but in the future, who's going to control what's out there? Because sure, I could go create my own social network, but it's nowhere near as impactful and, and of benefit to me if I'm not on YouTube versus I have my own video hosting site, right? For example, right? Who's going to control it in the future, Steve?
6: Um, well, that's that's why decentralized platforms are looking to be very interesting. If you are uh, if you're suffering from centralized control with a, a centralized agent that's making decisions um, that maybe not everybody agrees with, then you know, decentralized platforms are emerging. Mm-hmm. You have YouTube, which is a centralized platform under a, a mega corporation of Alphabet, uh, or you have DTube, which is fully decentralized based on blockchain, mm-hmm. uh, which actually rewards people who post content that is uh, popular and and widely shared. So you get cryptocurrency in return, tokens in return, uh, and it's completely decentralized. So the community decides what goes. So we're we're going through a shift. I mean, blockchain has been around now for what, 10 years? Uh, As a technology, it's really only just starting to find its feet Mm -hmm. and solve problems, um, including things like maybe delivering us decentralized platforms so that you can talk about your cigars freely.
0: Questions, comments from others?
6: So
2: I, I had a question. Go, Lee. When, when, you when you're talking about AI getting better at creating uh, believable content, I was thinking with the movement for, you know, short communication, you know, the, the SMS, 280 characters, 140 characters, does that help or hurt that?
6: Uh, I mean, it's probably easier to create 140 character convincing um communication than it is to create a thousand words of prose. Um, But I mean, this stuff is already getting so good that it can create pretty believable video at this point. And this is 2019 Um, within two years, it's going to look great. So I'm, I'm worried about all manner of communications. And if you can create believable 15 minute videos um, where somebody sounds and looks like the person, but it isn't, um you know 140 characters is easy well i I was wondering about that
2: (laughs) (laughs) i was asking because i was thinking about your how far out the time horizon would be and i was thinking if they could do that now it wouldn't be that many years out
6: yeah and and if your um, viewers haven't (coughs) excuse me i'm just choking on my whiskey here um if your viewers haven't looked at this yet. I mean, just Google uh, deepfake Obama, deepfake Mm -hmm. George Bush, Mm -hmm. uh, and see what was possible two years ago. And it'll give you a feel for where the technology is today. Um, What it means is you have a completely different type of threat to your company. You're not worrying now about someone penetrating your enterprise um, with a phishing attack, a Trojan, virus, you know, whatever malware it might be. Now what you have to worry about is somebody attacking your brand and using disinformation, misinformation to mischaracterize your company and do you damage without ever getting inside your organization. It is a new game, uh, and a new type of attack that you're gonna to have to start worrying about. And what it means, you know, how you counteract that, you know, you need to start we all need to start thinking about taking digital forensics technology um, very seriously. How do we validate that content is real, that it comes from the person that it says it comes from? Because potentially every brand on the planet is now at risk.
3: I I think it's a little bigger than that, Steve, right? Because think about a, a, um, a deep fake of a president making a statement that tanks the stock market. I mean, this is bigger than just an individual company i mean this could be used in in a much more holistic way across our economy across the world i mean this is scary kind of stuff because you know what deepfake did is is pretty realistic and i mean if we think about murphy's law i mean we're 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 close in the next year or so to having this be so realistic that it could make major implications for our entire society or, or economy.
6: Yeah, you're right. And I, I tailored my remarks knowing who watches this this podcast. Uh, but yeah, this has much broader implications. Um, you know, that, that open AI example I mentioned earlier with the AI that wrote a fake news story. You know, open AI is holding that code. Uh, they don't think it's good a smart move to release it because it could be weaponized. The example they gave was a news release talking about how Russia had fired missiles at the U.S. And the U.S. was responding. Yeah, what would that do to the stock market if it looked like it came from Reuters?
3: Agreed. Or AP or any of those other news sources. Right.
6: So this comes down to how do, how do we validate and trust our sources, which is kind of the root problem that, that you know, disinformation on Facebook comes back to is people are not checking their sources. If it comes from, you know, um, internet news now.com, um, versus AP people don't really look at the difference. Huh. Mm-hmm.
1: That's very that's true. scary. So, so I have a, a scary proposition. Or a scary question or something of the like. And, you know, tying a lot of things that we've talked about together about, quote, you know, what does that time horizon look like? Um, and, you know, me thinking about the security and you know, thinking about, you know, I, I don't have those things in my house because I, I, I don't trust those technologies versus some of us that do. Um, yeah, I've I, I grew up. My science fiction beginnings were on the, quote, GURPS, cyberpunk type of stuff, where you could take the computer and you could jack it directly into your brain, and then you could have this, quote, augmented reality and alternate realities and, and all of those those types of things. You know, and, and looking to the future... Yeah, we have that today, but it's mostly used for porn. Right. <laughs> but but you can't jack the computer into your brain, and... but. You know, how depends far, on how,
0: where you think your brain is, Larry. Well, all right. Good
1: point. Good point. And I mean, if you put your brain in that... Wait, never mind. Uh, but how far are we off from that? And, and what does that reality look like? And is it terrifying or is it is it amazing? Because I want it to be amazing. Because sign me up.
6: Well, it comes back to what's the future you want to build and what's the future you want to avoid, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, we need to have that conversation. What, what are we trying to build? Um, we're still a ways away. I mean, I, I worked at Intel for over thirty years. Uh, five, seven years ago, there were, you know, pretty pretty good research efforts into brain machine interfaces. Uh, you've got Elon Musk saying Neuralink is, you know, a project that they're putting lots of money into, and he's promising all kinds of advances there. Um, from what I can tell, uh, we are still a ways away from being able to strap on a helmet and have our thoughts extracted and uploaded to the cloud. And, I thought that was and, Second know, Life. Control was, that, devices, right? was
0: that Second Life? Well, well, uh, thank I guess goodness. without the neural interface. Yes. Yep. But when you have a neural interface, my guess is it's going to look very much like Second Life. <laughs> hey, sign me up.
6: <laughs> but let's talk about augmented reality for a bit because that's another area that we need to think about. We're moving towards an era of what I call augmented work, and we can talk about the broader landscape of that, kind of moving from physical work to knowledge work to augmented work, and I'll, I'll talk about that in my keynote at Secure World. Um, but you, you have this idea of creating a hybrid worker, um, somebody who is a combination of physical in, you know, intelligence, human intelligence, human physicality, and then digital intelligence. And the the best way to um, to show a human what to do next, for a digital intelligence to show a human what to do next, is using the visual cortex to be able to use augmented reality to show a robot repair worker um, unscrew this, pull this connector out, insert this, you know, to, and a bit of show them what to do physically next. It's kind of real time training. Um, if if that becomes the norm, if we start to be using augmented reality in the workplace, and about eighty percent. Of um of workers are hands-free, whether you're a, a surgeon or a construction worker, right? 80% of people do not sit at desks. Uh, and that, that's not like the people on this podcast and me, right? So 80% of people would would benefit perhaps from having a hands-free, click-free experience, which is about gesture and voice and augmented reality. You play that forward. Now I can think about this hybrid worker who is a combination of human and digital intelligence as a target that I can hack. Because I can hack that person's perception, I can maybe lead them to do something they wouldn't otherwise have done. So now I have another level of threat. If, if you are interested in, in any of that sort of stuff, and it like, sounds like you all like science fiction, uh, there's an interesting short book called Sycamore. There's a follow-up called Sycamore 2. It's kind of a, about a uh, what happens when augmented reality goes crazy.
1: Heading to Audible right now.
0: <laughs> there was a movie about that too, right? <clears throat> Where you you had a clone and you could walk around as your clone. What was that? Who was in that? Anyway, it'll come to me Surrogates. later. Surrogates. Surrogates was that what it's called? Surrogates. Yeah.
6: Surrogates with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Bruce
0: Willis. That's who it was. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you, Steve.
6: I'm your movie guy. Whatever you want to know, I'm <laughs>
0: here. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, we'll switch into TV for a moment. Um, some of my most favorite episodes of Black Mirror, I think, most accurately predict the future, or at least speculate about the future based on today's current conditions of folks posting on social media, folks trolling, or posting responses on social media. Uh, there's two episodes in particular. I don't want to mm-hmm. ruin it for our, you know, audience. But what, what are the societal impacts of technology in that respect? Do you think that we'll do a better job of policing that in the future so we don't go to those extremes you know, where you get rewards points for acting like a, a good citizen or you know, you're not killed if you're not trolling someone on or you know, making fun of someone on social media? Do, do you th- how does society play into those technology changes as that is the way that we primarily communicate today and probably more so in the future?
6: I mean, I was thrilled when Netflix picked up Black Mirror and gave it a broad audience because it it meant that more people were thinking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important as a society that we we kind of go not to the fringes, but almost to the extremes and look at the corner cases of uh, an idea and explore the dark side as well as the good side. Mm -hmm. Um, The danger is we become so afraid of the dark side that we throw away the opportunity on the good side
0: yeah that's true
6: you know um Mm -hmm. if we are all so afraid of ai that we say no that's it no more ai you're potentially denying millions of people a cure for cancer or Mm -hmm. alzheimer's perhaps including yourself or grandpa or even your kids right there there will be such incredible benefits ai is a very powerful tool You can use that tool to do some really nasty stuff, Mm -hmm. or you can use it to unlock the secrets of the universe, discover powerful new drugs, create new wonder materials. Make
0: your broom Uh, stand up magically in your living room. (laughs) Exactly.
6: (laughs) Let's hope that we can do that. (laughs) But my point is let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because.
3: I, I said that to cool. my
6: two-year-old,
0: and, and he gave me a dirty look.
6: <laughs>
0: you Trying to explain to a two-year-old that it's an expression. <laughs> he doesn't get it. He was very mad at me. <laughs> he was like, Dad, don't throw me away. I'm like, no, no, no. It's just an ex-. Never mind. Oh, no.
4: <laughs>
0: my wife's just oh, looking no. at me shaking her head, me trying to explain that to my two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, um yeah, I. I and uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, when you say that, Stephen, I, I put people in different categories of, you know, the ones that watch Black Mirror, and I think even before they see something like that, have made the decision, I'm not going to have the voice activation, I'm not going to have the AI, I'm not going to let my kid, like, they're very just opposed to everything without understanding the impacts. But what I think we're here to do as the security community is allow people, we realized, I think, really early on, that we have <coughs> to allow people to use technology, but do that in... A secure way and i think that's what scares us the most about the future is for me it's twofold how do we allow people to use technology securely and how do we keep up with criminals and the bad actors and the way that they're going to use technology in ways we never would have thought right i mean i think today when we look at the the dark web and we look at the various techniques criminals are using what they're doing with the information they're stealing how they're monetizing it there's some really creative things in there. And those are the two things that scare me the most is protecting people and also trying to keep tabs on criminals, which is something that we we haven't really discussed yet.
6: There's a big difference between caution and fear, right? I think it's important that we all think about these things, especially in the security world. Um, You know, there's a community, community of people who need to live in a scary world and think about worst case and try and outthink adversaries and nip things off before they can happen. Um, for the general population, I think they should not be afraid. They need to be cautious and just mindful. Um, because if we all slip into fear, uh, one, it's not a good place to be. Um, but two, it, it may slow us down as a species. And, and I don't want that.
4: Mm.
0: Questions for Steve? Anyone else? I got mine. Steve, are you ready to play five questions with security? You bet. Sweet.
6: How does this work? You Uh, ask me five questions, I give you five uh, answers? Yes,
0: so here's how it works. I ask you five questions, Steve. Uh, There is no right or wrong answer. Uh, Larry will also give you some coaching during the the five questions. At least on one specific. Yes, some are free form answers, some are multiple choice. So... If you're ready, no question one is three words to describe yourself.
6: Bald Um oh, Chocolate lover. There you go.
1: See, I like I like tall, handsome and a liar. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: Steve, if you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice?
3: AI. Ooh.
0: If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be?
6: uh unicycling fool how about that
0: in the popular game of ask grabby grabby do you prefer to go first or second
6: sorry say that again
0: in the popular game of ask grabby grabby do you prefer to go first or second
6: Hmm.
0: it's a very futuristic game steve
6: it is, and I have to and, think we is can't, there, and we can't even there there get them on the
0: European
1: rules. Rule. <laughs> they, they
6: shouldn't be ass grabbing in the future, right? So, <laughs> is it a trick question because there isn't any ass grabbing in the future? I, I don't
0: Steve, know. It's Steve is really on, on point. On right? point. Steve? <laughs> <defense>. The futurists <laughs> always figure that out. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh,
1: Steve, most of our our, our uh, American guests or Native American guests don't get it, and we always tell them, "Well, oh, it's really popular in Europe, so we can't even use that one on you." <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just a different set of rules in Europe
1: yeah, really Yeah.
6: So. well it depends on which country in Europe exactly. uh, Northern it Europe does. not so much, Southern Europe yeah probably a bit more
0: <laughs> the rules change Yes. <laughs> so Steve first or second say again? first or second oh first choose two celebrities to be your parents alive, dead, fictional or otherwise
6: two celebrities to be my parents goodness uh, is this where you give me some coaching, give me some ideas here?
1: Mm. Um, well, our most popular answer is Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> so an Oedipus yeah. Complex is perfectly uh, perfectly okay. I really like uh, Betty they White. They don't and, fit you, though, Steve, so no. don't go there. Mine
0: are Betty White and Robert Downey Jr., mostly as Iron Man, rather than, <clears throat> than the actual Robert Downey Jr. But
6: <laughs> It would probably be somebody who could make me good wine. Um mm-hmm probably a good winemaker would be one parent. I don't, I don't know any, and any then, famous uh,
0: sommeliers. Famous sommeliers. Well, they they only serve the wine. Famous sommeliers for two hundred, Alex. <laughs>
3: George Hendry. Uh, I mean, I can think of a few. They're a little. Hold on, this one.
0: Francis know. Coppola was he a sommelier? Is that that's the no, wine we're drinking? Coppola <laughs> has a
3: winery. I don't. I mean, he had wineries, so right. But he had it. He had somebody else make them for him. All right, so we're
1: we're we're at a, uh, a someone who could make me really good wine and
6: and uh
0: there are no limitations due to gender either we don't again there's no
6: oh, right good, or yeah. wrong
0: no right it's or wrong
1: in answer. the
6: future where two guys can have a baby is that the, yeah, we're, the deal we're,
0: well, or we're in the now where we're two in guys the now can, yes that is now, that is now <laughs> right I mean or maybe they one could carry the baby in the future what's sure.
6: does it have to? to be a human could could one of my parents be perhaps a super AI that would be fun
3: well, sure and why not why not
6: good advice on sure. dating than a super AI
3: Sure, why not? Super uh, a super AI yeah. with a winemaker twist. That'd be interesting. they
1: could make yep. the together. They could make the best wine. That's
3: right.
0: Crowdsource it through AI. <laughs>
1: that that is now my officially my new favorite answer. Yes, oh, I like that very much. Someone feed. who can make
0: great wine in a super AI. I mean, there is no right <laughs> or wrong answers, but we will judge all of your answers, I guess is what we're saying. <laughs> we won't judge you on the ass grabby one, but the, the parents, yes. We won't judge you. We'll judge your answers, basically. How about that? Steve, uh, uh, now, so when is your upcoming uh, know, It is Secure World Boston, and that is happening. Uh, um, there's a lot of conferences back to back.
6: 27th to yes. 28th of March, yeah, okay. in the Heinz Convention Center, I'm told. Uh.
3: Yes, yeah, that's he's what we'll on be. day one opening keynote, I believe, Sweet. and also doing some uh, plus content in a workshop beforehand. Yeah,
6: they have me do like a five- or six-hour workshop. So uh, it, the structure of the workshop, for those who are interested, come and spend some time with me. Um, we can get into some stuff. I talk about AI and what are the applications of AI, how does it work, um, how does it solve business problems, and then I do a whole section – on bo- blockchain. What are the applications of blockchain? Why is it important? It's not just about cryptocurrency. What is it, how does it let you do distributed platforms? How does it let you create value by bringing people together in different ways? And then I actually run what's called a future casting session. Um, future casting sessions are a sort of one to three day effort to uh, explore the future. We do a little mini version in the workshop so people can understand the concept uh, and apply some of the things that they've learned about AI and blockchain and start to imagine the future in a kind of structured way. So it's Sweet. a fun little plus session that we do uh, on the other day. It's it's fun. So I'd love to see you there. Come and awesome. uh, spend some time with me.
0: I will uh, probably see you there. If you're there on the first day, I will probably be there on, on day one. Are you going to be there? Re- yeah,
3: I will be there, yes.
0: Oh, great. you there, okay. both of us. Yeah. I will be there, too. Bring whiskey. We'll have whiskey. We always have whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> we're yeah, whiskey we'll have whiskey. Up. I'm in. Yeah, I'm I'm we're going to drive it person. up from Rhode Island or wherever. There you go. Wherever. <laughs> yeah, and then we can go to dinner at Strip by Strega, my favorite restaurant. So... Yes. Awesome, Steve. Thank you so much for appearing on Paul's Security Weekly. Make sure that you visit SecureWorldExpo.com. Use the code Security Weekly. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back with the security news for this week.
6: Hi there. My name is Ron Gula. I started my career in cybersecurity as a penetration tester, and I used scripts, common knowledge, and advice from my friends. And 20
5: years later, a lot of us are doing the same thing. Scythe allows you and your red team to change all of that and emulate not only more efficiency in your network, but
6: emulate the best nation states and moderate advanced persistent threats out there. This doesn't overwhelm your defense, it gives a scientific and realistic thing for them to train against and make sure they're not only configured right to detect these threats, but to respond and have the proper procedures. You can use automated continuous red teaming to make your red team the best one out there.
0: To find out more about Scythe, visit scythe.io forward slash securityweek. Thinkst Canary makes high-fidelity honeypots that set up in minutes and requires no ongoing administration. Attackers moving silently on your network advertise their presence by tripping over them. There's a good reason Thinkst Canaries are deployed and loved by some of the best security teams in the world. They're inexpensive, they're simple, and they work. For more information, go to securityweekly.com forward slash canary or direct message at sign Thinkst Canary on Twitter, Domain Tools help security analysts turn threat data into threat intelligence. They take indicators from your network, including domains and IP addresses, and connect them with nearly every active domain on the internet. Those connections drive risk assessments, help profile attackers, guide online fraud investigations, and map cyber activity to attacker infrastructure. Fortune 1000 companies, global government agencies, and leading security solutions vendors use the Domain Tools platform as a critical ingredient in their threat investigations and proactive defenses. For more information, visit securityweekly.com forward slash domain tools. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. This is the security news. First, I have a quick announcement. April 1st through the 3rd. Listeners should know what happens April 1st through 3rd. I mean, other than April Fool's Day, it is InfoSec World at Disney's Contemporary Resort. That's right. You can connect and network with like-minded individuals in search of actionable information. InfoSecWorld.Misty.com. Use the registration code OS19-SecWeek. Get 15% off the main conference or world pass. You can also go to securityweekly.com forward slash conference request, submit your request for a free briefing or paid interview, just as you would with, with RSA that I talked about earlier. How about that? Is there any more announcements? No. All righty. Let's get into the security news. Is everyone oh, yeah. here use a password manager? Raise your hand if yes. you use a password manager. I do. Yes. I, I use LastPass. Is anyone, everyone on Last Last? LastPass? Larry, you're last. I, I use OnePass. OnePass. One password. Yeah, there was a vulnerability in, I think most of, 1Password and LastPass both had at least one vulnerability. 1Password <laughs> might have had multiple. Mm-hmm. No knock on one pa- Again, Again, it, it's interesting, the advice from the articles was like, yes, there's vulnerabilities in them, but you should still use them. Yes. Because the risks <laughs> do not outweigh the benefits <laughs> in this case. Yep. Like There is great benefit. I, I, I couldn't survive without a password I have a great
1: follow-on story to this, but mm. fin- let's finish this one.
0: Well, I, so uh, master passwords being stored in memory, that could potentially be stolen by other programs in memory was the problem in this case with LastPass. My whole thing is if, when I first heard of this concept of password managers, I think kind of interesting how it mirrors our previous discussion about the future, I was like, no way I'm putting all my passwords in one place. And then it was only someone I trusted, Jack Daniel, that said, no, they do a good job of keeping it encrypted. And the benefits you know, outweigh the risks. And I started using LastPass, and I was like, well, first, I'm going to use a password that is only for my password manager. Second, I'm going to use some form of two-factor authentication. Yep. I chose the YubiKey, which turns out to be the world's biggest pain in the ass. But I deal with it because I want that level of protection. I don't want someone to be able to grab my phone and then somehow gain access to my, my password vault. I also keep the highly sensitive passwords outside of the vault mm-hmm. uh, in case it does fall into the wrong hands. I feel that things like your domains, your email, uh, you know, my my G Suite account, others I keep outside of the password manager, give them a completely separate password and set up two-factor authentication uh, separately on those mm-hmm. is, with a physical token is how I approach the problem so I don't, Uh, you know, it's bad that the password managers have vulnerabilities. Good that people are looking for them and reporting them and they're getting fixed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, uh, there's going to be vulnerabilities in just about everything. Yeah, it's software. And uh, and the fact that they're getting fixed and we'd still encourage you to use them, but use them, you know, judiciously and appropriately.
0: It was the whole thing like my guest wireless network can be a VLAN (laughs) rather than a physical interface. And I'm like, well, I really need a physical interface (laughs) right Uh now freed uh up. So I'm going to use VLANs and the thought, as a security professional, likely crosses your mind that my security is now based on software and not the physical layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to do the risk calculation and say how much risk is there for the security weekly guest wireless network. Right. <laughs> Being trusted to a VLAN, I'm like, I'm going to, Take that risk, essentially. Mm
1: -hmm. And does does the wireless port, does the wireless bridge uh, pass through 802.1Q trunking so that if you're on the wireless, can you pass through 802.1Q? That's a good
0: question. I implemented, Uh and we'll have Uh some technical segments on some uh, of the things I've built, but Uh we were having this conversation earlier, Larry, that if you've got the ubiquity access points, they support 1Q, on and the Ethernet I, side. And I remember, now that you say that, there has yeah. been vulnerabilities in the past where it leaks out on the wireless side. Yes.
1: And, and more importantly, can you tag your traffic on the wireless side?
0: Yeah. I remember the, we did all yeah, this. Because
1: yeah. that was one of the classic ones we used to do for getting access to VoIP. Was to, to jump VLANs vo- and to VoIP. Vo- VoIP. That's VoIP we've d-
0: I've done this before. Yeah. I've executed yeah. this attack before. Exactly. Yes. exactly. Yes.
1: VLAN, you know, do VLAN hopping, but mm-hmm. can we do that over wireless? Mm-hmm. So...
0: That's anyway, big, back to password. It's yeah. similar kind of thing, right? Yep. We're trusting it to software. Yep,
3: yep. So yeah, speak. We, go. You know, go ahead, man. one of the things that we've been looking at um, in some of the different uh, startups that we're looking at is, is there an ability to move away from username password, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, look, as long as we have passwords, some level of password vaults required, but there's some new technologies that are coming out that I think could change the way we think about Username, password, and, and aspects of authentication. I think it's a, a very interesting space to continue to track. Um, you know, if we could use, the, there's a new company out, X-I-I-D, um, that that is proclaiming the ability to do this one-time, time-based uh, authentication token, similar to what we do to, for two-factor authentication, but it wouldn't re- require a username a password i mean like that's pretty interesting right if we could get there then we maybe don't need these password vaults that have vulnerabilities anyways the identity space i think is ripe for disruption and i'd love to see you know how we maybe eliminate aspects of this and and maybe streamline what we do uh on this front well yeah and it's kind of scary that some of this is happening already
0: but not a full implementation in other words if i authenticate to Google, let's say through my browser and I give it my unique password really long and a second factor of authentication, it's like, well, you don't really want to go through all that uh, like every single day. And I'm yeah. like, no, I really don't. Cause I can never remember where my tokens are and I have to go find them. And, and then, so you authenticate and it's like, I'll, I'll remember you. And I think they're doing some of that in the back end, Matt, right? They're saying if you're in coming from the same IP address in the same location, from a machine that has the same signature, then I will trust that your credentials and second factor you provided 29 days ago are still good. And then as the user, you can very easily like fall victim to that and forget about either your second factor or your password because mm-hmm. it doesn't ask you very often. In fact, when it asks me sometimes to reauthenticate. authenticate to Google, it'll just ask me for my password, largely yep. because of what, what Matt's saying is that I'm from the same IP address on the same machine, and all those other factors match up, and it's like, yeah, I don't really need to challenge you with your right. second factor. Had I been logged in from a different machine in China, it would have prompted me, right. hopefully, for my second factor. However, what, what
1: for like we talk about super services like that, that gets annoying. For me, is like Google or any of the G Suite stuff. Yeah, tells me, oh my God, everything's been blocked because you didn't log in from yes. where you normally log in from. It's the other extreme. Because I to travel, because yeah. I travel a lot, mm-hmm. and then it gets even worse when when you're traveling and it's coming up as IPv6 addressing. Because mm-hmm. Google doesn't know where the IPv6 addressing is happening from. It always shows up in the center of the country. Interesting. Yeah, which is crazy. So to the point that I actually turned that shit off, mm-hmm. and it's still blocks me. Mm. Like, I still have to VPN home on my phone to get my email from Gmail.
0: IPv6 is is interesting. I was dealing with that. Largely, it it just causes issues for me, and I end Mm -hmm. up disabling it on critical servers and blocking it on firewalls. And I don't have an IPv6 address from my provider. If I do, Mm -hmm. I haven't assigned one yet. Mm -hmm. I, I think I want to. I think I'd rather pass it and monitor it then just block it entirely yes. and not get any of the benefits of of being able to to route it and and pass it
3: right right, right. if we add a billion iot devices to the security mm-hmm. network we'll need an ipv6 right exactly yes,
1: yes. please let's do
0: uh there's a lot of mm-hmm. raspberry but that could be a well maybe not a billion yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so might, all, that oh. might not fit in the budget i'm just probably saying yeah. not. probably not that's a be. lot of yeah. devices maybe one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: so, Paul, my follow-on story to, to that one is uh, one that I added to the show notes not that long ago uh, while we were doing the interview and stuff. Um, but we, we talk about using password managers and, and all of those types of things, which is fantastic, great. Um, but one of the things that in Guardians we found that it was a problem when we we're doing pen tests is that you you compromise a machine and you fire off the keystroke logger and you don't get any passwords anymore. Why? Because everybody's using a password manager, and they go into the password manager, and they get their password from whatever service they're trying to log mm-hmm. into. Maybe they're trying to go into a higher secured network through a jump box or something mm-hmm. of the like. And they go into the password manager, and it's all copy-paste. Yep. So one of our guys, Adam, wrote a tool to grab copy-paste mm-hmm. to pull the clipboard constantly, to be able to pull that information from the clipboard. And send it back. Is city. the
0: action when it auto fills in your browser a copy paste action? I don't. Or? That I don't know. A lot of times it, it, that doesn't work, and you do have to manually copy, copy and paste. And yeah.
1: even we're talking about potentially other services like RDP. Yeah, you're or jumping SSH to another. Yeah, your story. Of those yeah,
0: it's of not a browser thing. I have passwords in there that are not. Yeah, browser yeah. related. Right? You right. just You're like, well, if I'm going to store it somewhere, I'm going to store it on my password manager because it goes with me everywhere. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. So, so not not only that, um, you know, great. So now in conjunction with you know, grabbing copy-paste from the password manager, we can grab that. And then if you have to go to two-factor mm-hmm. and keyboard, mm-hmm. and we're doing keystroke logging at the same time, there's the possibility for grabbing your two-factor token for whatever the token period is Correct. and your password. For Correct doing some of that type of stuff. Yeah, because the token, can, the physical token, is just seconds, a keyboard, maybe, yep. yeah, or thirty seconds. seconds depending. But sometimes, if you if that's scripted, that's all you
0: need. If it's scripted, yeah, you could definitely but pull that off. That's
1: all you need. Um, the that other that one, token's
2: only supposed to work once. Once it's used, it's supposed to be dead.
0: Supposed to, it's
1: supposed to, supposed to.
2: Hmm.
1: Hmm. hmm. You mean software implementation the, thing. The two-factor thing, absolutely. But in many of the cases, you know, we're seeing still folks not with two-factor mm-hmm. on all of their stuff. So two-factor is great. But Yeah, two-factor
0: is great for where you've enabled it. Right.
1: But using a password manager is great until we end up with a tool that can grab all of your clipboard stuff and, and exfiltrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that uh, Adam used this for was the ability for um, to use the, uh, the the clipboard to do uh, command and control exfil. Interesting. Like you just keep... You, you, you put some, something in the yeah. clipboard and then you monitor the clipboard and you pull it down. So mm-hmm. you can do data exfil via clipboard on compromised machines. That's um, pretty cool. So Adam just did a, a webcast on that today and uh, we released the code. Uh, I should say Adam released the code uh, for that today. Sweet. So uh, there's a link in the show notes for it. And would probably be awesome if he uh, did a tech segment on it because it's, it's pretty damn, pretty damn hefty stuff. Like next level shit.
0: This is the other Adam. I think it was the other <laughs> yes. Adam because it's very similar to. So the there's other. an
1: Adam Crompton. Yes. And there's an Adam Compton.
0: Adam Compton's who we worked with at Tenable.
1: Yes. Adam Crompton works for In Guardians.
0: See, I w- whenever you say Adam that you work with, I always think that it's, that <laughs> Adam, it's Compton. Yeah, Adam Compton. Yeah. Compton. Yeah.
1: Yeah. they get that a lot? There's a n- very near namespace collision.
0: Right. On that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Did you see this new free tool that scans Chrome extensions from Duo? No. It's called CR Excavator. Scans a set of factors including permissions, external calls, third-party libraries, content security, and metadata to give well security and IT staff or those that are just interested uh, into the safety of the browser extension. I ran it on a couple of extensions it told me they were doing some really bad things. Really? Yeah, it's very interesting. Like which one? It like it's basically like Virus Total, but for your Chrome extensions. Huh. Yep. It's awesome. It's awesome. They tell you everything about the extension, what it accesses, it uh, what it accesses, mm-hmm. uh, the different criticality. I mean, they ranked the criticality levels. I haven't researched them. I just looked at it quick, but uh, I thought it was really cool. You have to either hook into the API or like manually copy and paste the name or the uh, individual ID of that extension mm-hmm. uh, into the search engine. So It's very much geared towards a corporate environment that would collect that data in through an API would, uh, at least my initial assessment of it was, was just that.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that said, I have so few extensions to my Chrome browser
0: mm-hmm. that I can count them on
1: not including the built in Chrome ones.
0: Yeah, um, I go in and purge every once in a while. Yeah. Probably I, a lot more often than <coughs> most users, but I regularly purge <coughs> because they they follow me, right? Because I've got the the insecure Chrome thing yep. <laughs> set up that's protected by a password that you. Yep. Yeah, I was yep. talking about that last week, I think. Uh, yeah, and it follows me. So because it crosses multiple computers. And does it? Cr- it doesn't cross into my phone though, that I know of, because the mobile browser is different. Right. Um. But yeah, all of my computers, it carries all my extensions mm-hmm. with it, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to carry over all any insecure. Well, at least to my knowledge, until Duo came out with <laughs> yeah. CR Excavator, which is making me look at it. it. It's like a whole new nice. It's a whole new vulnerability scanner, essentially. Right. Matt, to it reminded me of Tenable of like, oh, there's this new thing. Let's create a vulnerability scanner for it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, just another place to look for vulnerabilities in code, and those extensions are, are definitely ripe for that. I mean, we, we load these things without thinking about it sometimes. Right. I don't, I don't load that many personally, which is good. It's like HubSpot and a couple other ones, but that's it. I
0: yeah. have a core set that probably sounds like more than what uh, you guys are running, yeah. but I do uh, have a core set. Uh, uh, that as- I
1: aside of- from the quote Chrome app ones, like Docs, Sheets, and Slides, yeah, um, there are six. Yep. One one password, mm-hmm. Cisco WebEx, Foxy Proxy, Google Docs offline, Pinboard, and User Agent Switcher. Mm-hmm. That's it.
0: Yeah, I have a proxy switcher, a Hover Zoom, which now now is in great question <laughs> as to whether or not. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, what's the functionality what, versus what, security? What's the Hover Zoom do? Is that because you When old? you hover over an image, it'll uh, make it old, full size. Because you're old. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm old, mostly. <laughs> yeah. Even with glasses, it's, <laughs> it helps a lot. Those aren't glasses; those are cheaters. They are cheaters. <laughs> they're just a fancy cheaters. That's all nice. they are.
1: <laughs> oh! I went
0: a little too over the top with my cheaters. I have ones that are redi- like '70s porn star ridiculous. Oh, yeah, awesome. It, it's very polarizing. Either people are like, "What the, are those?" Or, <sighs> or they're like, yeah, "Maybe next show we'll will break them out." Nice. Nice. Anyway. So what's next? Uh, Well, speaking of stuff that's been there for a really long time and kind of like an add-on, nasty code execution bug in WinRAR. We all know and love and remember WinRAR. I haven't had to use it very often. Recently, I haven't had to use it very often, probably due to the fact that we all have a lot more bandwidth than we did back in the day, and Uh we don't require... uh Uh, something like WinRAR. File systems have advanced to... I used WinRAR to break up lo- really large files yeah. into smaller... Like for distributing yeah. a VM for a class. Yep. Or, f- use or for, RAR. say,
1: downloading stuff from binary news groups or... That... I mean...
0: Yes. I've told my... My friends told me. I mean, right. I told my friends. I mean, my friends told me... That's that what I could, read on the internet. I read it on the internet that you could get pirated material that way. But anyway, the vulnerability has been there for uh, millions of users for 14 years... It was the result of an absolute path traversal flaw residing in a DLL that was third-party code that's in a library that hasn't been updated since 2005. Oof. Yes. This is, the I think, some of the fundamental problems, now fundamental problems, we're going to have to deal with. And it's kind of scary that some of this shit's been out there for 14 years and just being fixed and discovered now. I mean, good that it's being discovered now. But how many more of these vulnerabilities? In that I've included a library; it's never been checked. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's either in control—you know—an evil, bad person's in control of this library, or it's just not being updated, and therefore has vulnerabilities that everyone (coughs) just forgot. I mean, as a software developer, or
1: more importantly, who has who has known about said vulnerability for 14 years?
0: Right, and has been exploiting it php <clears throat> yeah
3: it, well, wordpress is another one that's been out there for yeah, a long I mean, time yeah. it, this is the ch- i think this is a challenge w- a little bit with leveraging open source code embedding these binaries into your code base there's a lot of dependencies mm-hmm. of other binaries and yeah. some of these binaries have not been either updated or checked in a long time and there's a ton of vulnerabilities and they're not getting closed. Mm-hmm. and when, when we were at Layered Insight, we always picked on PHP. The PHP binary keeps growing in vulnerabilities and nobody's fixing the stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just another example of that. And it, it, it's very dangerous when we just do an include of a binary mm-hmm. or a and library. Yep. We've never checked it or a library. Mm-hmm. And we've never checked it to understand are there vulnerabilities sitting here? that we're now exposing just because we decided to take some open source off the shelf. Yep. This, was, this,
1: this was is very, the classic, this was, it
0: works, don't touch yeah, it. This
1: was the subject of Kevin Johnson's talk at Wild West Hackenfest this year, was <laughs> reliance on effectively reliance on third-party modules has devastated us. Yeah, And we need to maybe get back to basics and do all this processing with some security in mind ourselves as opposed to relying on third-party
0: modules. My whole thing is if you're practicing <clears throat> really good DevSecOps I talked about this I think last week on a show I was talking to someone and they were talking about the right way to check that all your libraries are secure, as Matt mentioned, you know, worked for companies and there's lots mm-hmm. of tenable bought someone like the lots of companies are looking for either flaws in containers or flaws in libraries or other third party code. If everyone's doing this, aren't we discovering vulnerabilities that these maintainers may not have known about and reporting them and making the world a better place just by practicing good DevSecOps, right? In other words, if I'm taking WinRaw as an example and I'm practicing DevSecOps and DevOps and I'm moving towards that model and I'm doing an inventory and I'm looking at all the things and I'm doing my scanning and fuzzing and QA testing and dynamic analysis – I'm likely going to run into one of these vulnerabilities. If everyone's doing that, we improve the overall security level of all of the code, not just our own code, but those other libraries that are being included inside of our software, essentially making the world a better place. Given the number of reports on this software and all different kinds of software that has these vulnerabilities, makes me think there are very few that are actually practicing a really good DevOps DevSecOps process or an SDLC that's finding these vulnerabilities or they're not including the libraries they're including other ones that are being more secure not the ones in you know poor free software like like WinRAR
2: I, I was I wondered you know let's say we got we got an open source project and somebody says here's this horrific bug that I found in your stuff and the open source, is, I mean, they're maintaining it out of their goodwill. I mean, what's the reaction when somebody does that? Are they, you know, are they looking to blow them out of the water? Or are they, look, you know, are they, how in, how inclined are they to actually take action and fix the flaw? I, I think,
0: what's, well, what's like anything, it varies, Lee. Um, I think the track record on a lot of more major open source projects is they fix them oftentimes faster than commercial software. And oftentimes that's just because... One of the contributors can make a commit, and if it passes QA, it gets out of the next release, right? And it's off to the races. You mean
1: passes QA? You mean it, ran, it worked on my machine?
0: Well, yeah. I use the term QA loosely. <laughs> when I say QA, I mean it compiled yeah. and passed some basic unit tests. Therefore, it was committed yep. into, the, basic into the unit branch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you mean it compiled <laughs> and autom- gave the results that I expected that one time? It compiled
0: <laughs> and it ran. Okay. That's, yeah, agree- that, yes. Yeah, right? So that, right? That was the basic unit it, test. It, it compiled yeah.
2: and it ran with not too many errors. Right.
0: Yeah. Yep. with just as many or maybe less errors than before.
1: Yep. And uh, I, I actually sort of experienced that exact type of thing uh, over the last couple of days. I've been following a new uh, new project. Well, it's an old project that I just had some renewed interest in, and it was basically there was a bug report followed uh, filed today, and within an hour it was fixed. Mm-hmm. And it and the response was, "Wow, you're fast!" Like, yeah, because we don't have to go through all this huge process of Sec DevOps and. Yeah, it was something fairly simple oh, to fix. Oh, so
0: this yeah. this DLL in WinRAR uh, uses Ace compression. I'm assuming that's kind of like middle out compression is uh, my guess.
1: Was, is it like a bandage? Bandage like wrap? No, yeah, but ACE
0: the, it's probably. Okay. Uh, but here's my thing. As if let's say I'm a WinRAR developer, I'm just going to try and put myself in this shoes of a developer that's developing compression software. Uh-huh. I need to support this other similar or other method of compression. Am I going to write all of the code from scratch to implement this compression algorithm like middle-out compression or am I going to go get this library that I'm like, oh, all I have to do is call this library. Hey, it works. Our software is now compatible with all these different platforms and all these different files because I incorporated this library in 2005. And moving forward... I don't have to do any maintenance on it. Like, hey, it work. It passes QA. Yep, like, it does. It, it does what it's supposed to do. It passes the the linting test largely because we don't have the source code. Maybe um, it passes the the QA. Like, everything builds when I incorporate this library. Yep. It runs. Like, I can run WinRAR in an automated environment and it runs. Everything's happy. And so for fourteen years, like I'm off to the races. I don't have to. As a developer, yeah. I can go on and implement all these other features and bug requests that people are requesting of me but lo and behold that library never really got tested for security right
1: and 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 maybe the oh man Maybe I should re-implement this in my own function or my own library because it hasn't been maintained yeah. in nine years.
0: But I've got a dozen uh, bug requests that came in today yeah. that I need to t- yeah. attend to. And I'm an open source developer, so I have a day job. And yep. So like, I worked on this on the weekend, and, and WinR- I really wanted to implement this other feature and not go back and like yep. retrofit some library yep. that I implemented five years ago. And, right?
1: win- and WinRAR is semi-obtuse for its, you know, its market share. right? And yeah,
3: I get it. It's Interesting, WinZip, Compress, Archive, lots of other choices out there. Yeah,
0: for, but not for, for, not, for RAR though, I mean, it's on Windows, it's pretty much WinRAR. On OS X, it was this really weird one. There was a different Ke- program, Keka. Ke- Keka, thank you. Uh, it was Keka. On Linux, there's is it just on on, on RAR, RAR? There was yeah. like, I don't know, it's like on apt and it's like an apt package you install, yeah. right? There's Various utilities to so th- handle it.: I, I threw away all my Windows devices, so I don't know anymore. I, I agree, Matt, I do too, which is why with KeckO is the one that I've been using on OS 10, largely for raw files, for creating and decompressing them, which is interesting. Anyway, you wonder what the, uh, how the other ver- uh, OS 10 and Linux now, my question is, how are they implementing this ACE compression? right is there another open source library and is it vulnerable to something in
3: a similar me kind me of me strokes
1: his beard right wonderingly yes knowingly yes, yes yes
3: and if apple uses it they will definitely not disclose it
1: oh well, Keka is a third-party app so yeah
0: yeah i think it's on the third os 10 doesn't distribute well that's why we need Keka, because they don't distribute right. anything natively right. neither does microsoft it's all third-party and third-party libraries apparently on top of that
4: hmm Huh.
0: Yes, I mean tar and gzip have worked really well for me in <laughs> Linux Hell and yeah. Unix environment for a really long time. Yep. Bzip and yep. that being said, the next bug we'll talk about. Now that I've said that, is probably something in tar and gzip. Nice. <laughs> it has been around since the dawn of man. Right. Right. And those literally have been since the dawn of Unix. Those, some of those have been around. Anyway, uh, where are we going next? Um mm. well, let's talk about WordPress. Uh oh.
3: There's oh, a remote WordPress code one.
0: uh execution flaw in 5.0.0. I'm pretty sure we're on 5.0.2 or 3 if or something. Not, you we're
3: will
1: be tomorrow. We're <laughs> beyond the
0: latest revision of WordPress is definitely beyond .0.0 5 branch. Um and this is uh could be exploited uh, so an attacker who has at least an author privilege, so this is very oh, much a privilege escalation vulnerability, right. they're able to install and execute arbitrary PHP code on the underlying server. So not, I mean, terribly earth-shattering. It is more like a privilege escalation. Yep. I mean, it is privilege escalation, I think. <clears throat> uh, anyway, not all
3: that interesting. But it's PHP, and we did cover a WordPress plugin. Um, vulnerability the other day on uh, Hack Naked News, which, which was interesting, right? This plugin gave you the ability to like um, upload malicious files and delete files off your WordPress. So mm. WordPress has had a couple issues this week in the news. Always, mm-hmm. always issues.
0: Well, and that's the problem. There's so many vulnerabilities that we say, well, this requires author privileges. If you've got a plugin that's vulnerable. You can likely get an account that gives you author privileges, and then use this to escalate privileges. There's just so many different exploits to build on in yep. in WordPress. I
1: I wonder, now that we think about it, we get so many third party requests to become a guest author on the blog. How yeah, how many, many of those? Are how just, many yeah. of those are social engineering attempts to get mm-hmm. author privileges on the blog?
0: Yeah, You've got I lots mean, of those. At that, uh, you just find an exploit and make yourself an author. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So
1: uh, I
2: start wondering. Go ahead, Lee. Uh, you remember last December there was the, the, the big issue with, you know, PHP five being vulnerable and dying and upgrade to PHP seven. I wonder how many CMS services like WordPress are still running the old buggy PHP underneath there despite all these other plugins.
0: Well, I know that our WordPress provider definitely had an upgrade path to later versions of PHP is like almost as soon as it came out and I, I think that's a valid point Lee is whether you're hosting it yourself or hosting it with someone else yeah <laughs> the security of your WordPress instance is really dependent on your the speed at which you can upgrade it mm-hmm. or if you don't have control of those subsystems the speed at which your provider can upgrade those and how easy and or difficult it is right with our provider you make snapshots you can make snapshots and you can create three different instances or environments of your wordpress site so you can upgrade it in one Test it, make sure it works, push that into the other one. If you want to do it live, you can make a backup, you can do the upgrade. If it fails, you can always revert, right? So I I found after doing WordPress for so many years that it's really just all about Mm -hmm. being as flexible and fast in testing all of the upgrades to plugins, to themes, the WordPress engine itself, PHP, all of those things have to Mm. be just like really easy test, deploy, go yep. uh, I, i'll give a plug wp engine i think does a great job at that they give you a great facility mm-hmm. to do that it the in cost wise security risk wise you look at hosting it yourself or hosting it with someone that's going to provide you all those facilities i'm like why am i going to go build what they already built yep interacting with their engineers i'm like these are people that really know wordpress yeah. very very well i'm like i'm going to use their their platform yep. i think that's a lot of decisions Matt, you and I have talked about that a lot of organizations are going to make, right? They're going to go to a platform, whether that's for containers, whether that's for virtual machines, whether that's for applications of any kind that can take care of the plumbing probably better than you can do it
3: yourself, right? Agreed. Yeah, I mean and that's the advantage of WP Engine in this particular case for us, but uh we're seeing this elsewhere in the in the entire cloud stack, right? Yeah. Any yeah. platform as a service, container as a service, orchestration as a service platform makes it easier for you not to deal with how do I scale a a Kubernetes cluster, right? I mean, right. that's not easy for most no. organizations. Right. Fun to and, and do in a
0: lab. Fun to do in a lab. Mm-hmm. Not something that everyone should try doing in production. Now, financial services largely are spinning up their own private clouds and infrastructure yep. as well as well they should um, but they're putting they the time... They have the resources
1: in, to do, yes, it. I mean, exactly the point, right? do it. I mean, they've got the bodies that
3: can do it. I mean, you look at what Capital One's doing, for example. I mean, <laughs> they've got a great team. They're they're building out all this stuff, but they're still moving it to cloud. But all the financials have huge staffs to be able to do this, but not every mm. company has that kind of resource um, availability to do this stuff on their own. Mm. And, well, and, and you and, think it was at stake, <clears throat> that having
0: you know done some stock trading, it, it, and you you click the buttons and you're like, oh, man, like I know how technology works under the covers, like e- even just, the, uh, I don't know how every technology works, right? But like having built services for uh-huh. enterprises and you're, you're clicking buttons straight and you're like, man, this has to be secure, reliable, fast, like the whole thing. And mm-hmm. and that's why I think they're making the decision to own a lot of that infrastructure themselves to control all of those yep. When you start handing control over to a cloud provider, that has to be balanced with your business plan and your risk and the services you provide.
1: And and that said, you you take that back to the the WordPress and hosted yourself or Mm. internal or third-party provider. That all comes back to the same sort of mentality. If you think about this most recent uh, Docker... uh, issue mm-hmm. docker kubernetes and it was the the underlying framework and i can't remember what it is it's on the tip of my tongue um but it it affected all of the 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 containerization um functions
0: oh that was a uh, run run yeah run, uh, run c run c run c, run c. Run c. Yeah, you yeah. think run about c. something like yeah. run c mm-hmm. that
1: affects all of the containerization i mean the even some of the big providers themselves struggled for potentially days and folks that have implemented it are still vulnerable to this stuff weeks later because yeah. it required user intervention that this is still so, a this is still a big yeah, problem I love, that doesn't I, get escape from
3: depending on where you put
1: your, your stuff or sure. how much staff you
3: have. Larry, I love this one because this is so easy to avoid. You don't give up root privileges in your containers ever. And uh, but, this is what things, yeah, uh, but the, but, but vo- but the easy, exploit that, is based on having root privileges, UID zero. If you're running in an ECS, EKS, etc., where you can't run root pri- privileges, yeah, or you're running in a Fargate right. where you don't have it, mm-hmm. this is easy to, to avoid. Mm-hmm. But the problem is we've decided that it's okay to give up root privileges in our agents and therefore in our containers to actually give us security privileges, which is just freaking crazy to me. But I, I, to your point, yeah, I mean, people are scrambling now because they gave up all these privileges, yes. which we've been telling people for years. Just don't, don't do, do this it. stuff. Yeah.
1: And and I hate to say it, this one was near and dear to my heart because, uh, you know, Guardians does their weekly newsletter, uh, and this was the subject of the new weekly newsletter this week was run C. Mm-hmm. Like this is the one blurb you need to know about as a C-level executive or as someone mm-hmm. in a position that needs to have one thing that they need to focus on this week type of thing. And that was the one that I spent hours and hours and hours about figuring out what this what this looks like. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was terrifying and, and Matt you're absolutely right, giving up the, that root access and, and more importantly giving the ability for folks to just not know what they're deploying as a container. Oh hey, I want to do Kismet in a container. Boop. Give me that public container. Well, who made said container? And what Well, yeah, it, and that's like the Chrome and, extension problem and, all and, over again. A, a, yeah. a, a, and the WordPress yep. plugin problem Absolutely. all over again.
0: Absolutely, nice. So, yep.
1: Oh, I found it on Reddit. Oh, It so gives crazy. me the heebie-jeebies just thinking about
3: it. Because, yikes. I, I keep saying it, no root. I, I mean, if if you think about the best way to secure the application for the digital transformation and containerization. Mm -hmm. You cannot give up root in those containers. You have to protect that environment. And this run C vulnerability that was announced a week ago, and in less than a week, the exploits were published on GitHub. I mean, within a week, we had active exploits to completely destroy your application and production. That's just crazy.
1: And not just that application, every application. Yes. Because if you can mm-hmm. escape the container, you have access to the host, which mm-hmm. means you can destroy every application that you're hosting there. And then if you have root level access to the host, you can potentially use that to explore other hosts and other portions of the network.
3: There's some. And exploit uh, them and on and on and on. This is a yeah. huge I, daisy I, chain of events. It, and there's great happening. technology to help protect your containers.
0: Absolutely. But I I still side with Matt. The architecture from the beginning has to carry that security message and carry security by design. Absolutely. It makes your job way easier. Look, you can do capsulate. I've spent some time with them. Their technology is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'd be really surprised if... They were not a hundred percent protecting their customers against something mm-hmm. like a run C. That's just in their DNA. Yep. Well, so so n-
1: so one you <clears> don't <throat> do the bad thing with running any of your run C stuff as root. You, mm-hmm. you can configure it not to be sure. to be CU- ID. But here's the, the
0: thing: developers are are going to be like uh, like man like oh like I just need to make this work like oh and uh-huh. it, it works this way. And they in in DevOps. They're making potentially some of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Maybe with security, maybe without, maybe security lost that argument. So uh-huh. that's kind of my point there. And, is and, and, and
1: and not to dismiss any of the folks that you guys, uh, we've done briefs with, any of those, but SE Linux and AppArmor can go, uh, could save your ass with something like well, that.
0: And then uh, I spoke with Polyverse, uh-huh. which compiles all of your binaries with runtime protection. Yep. Uh, different signatures, uh, in in varies all of the various uh, points of execution in memory, Mm -hmm. so that even if you do have some kind of exploit, it will not work because they varied all the memory addresses in using all the technology available to us, but made it available uh, in a uh, repo. uh,
1: Additional ASLR, uh, DEP, any of those types of things, in and above all of those.
0: Yeah, so they're using available technologies, but making it available in a package repo that's specific yep. to you. So when you install all the binaries from your package that's coming from their repo, those binaries are compiled to have different memory addresses. So your exploit doesn't work against me right. unless you specifically craft it for, for right. me. If you go to someone else, Additional it's going to be yeah, different. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so that's one. And then Capsulate's doing fantastic. I mean, essentially... A lot of the techniques to detect exploits on the endpoint kind of thing, they're detecting it inside of containers in a Linux platform and doing a really good job of that as well. So, I mean, there are other defensive technologies you can build on top of that, but the best thing to do is have your architecture be secure from beginning, do the threat modeling, and do training and awareness with your ops and developers to make sure they're implementing these systems securely. That gets really complicated. I mean, when we get into containers, and I was just reviewing my slides for RSA, I'll be talking about this at RSA, the various decisions that you have to make are decisions that previously were made by developers, network engineers, systems administrators, albeit sometimes in silos, but sometimes together. Now developers can basically just make those decisions and deploy the environment however they want because it's all virtual, it's all in software now.
3: <coughs> completely software-defined. There, yep. There's, and, unless you're embedding security into the DevOps process, there's no way to catch these things until the code's live, and by then it's too late. I mean, this has been the the whole the holy grail of DevSecOps and and what we ultimately want to do. But we have to understand that security has to be integrated along the DevOps process if we're going to catch this stuff before it goes into production, because if it if we're at the end of the cycle like we are today, forget it. Game over. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: the, the problem I'm having is that the guy who's in the in the developer role is no longer, without all the support of the engineers that focused on things like security and more, he, his security is only as good as his Google Foo. He's, he's going to find something that's reasonably close to what he wants and, and download it and deploy it. Um, and and then somebody's gonna say, well, you we should put some security monitor in there, and they'll say, he'll find something, and it'll probably run his root, because that's what that all does. <laughs> leaving the leaving the door back open again. I mean, how do we get the education piece in here?
3: Yeah, and, and I don't know that education is the way to do this because we tried well, the education piece. I think we have to look at various checkpoints in the CI C D process flow to look for some of these aspects. As part of the pipeline to say, look, I can't pass the build. I can't allow this Mm -hmm. uh, to be moved Mm -hmm. into staging and or production. That's where I think that integration point has to happen. And I'm a big believer that security has to figure out how to integrate its solutions better into what the DevOps process looks like. Than trying to say, nah, look, it, we'll just do this at the end, and you guys will log in, and you'll take care of all this stuff. It does. It will never mm-hmm.
0: ever work. It, ever, it, ever, risk it, is a it's something that needs to be balanced throughout the entire process, right? right? And it, it, if it, like Matt said, if it's at the end, it's it's too late. Things have already been implemented, a la Equifax, in a certain way that makes it very very difficult to keep updated. Where organizations are leading in security is they're making those decisions early on, allowing their developers to develop and deploy into an environment that is a lot more resilient than you would have previously in a waterfall model, I think is really the essence yeah. of DevOps and, and yeah. DevOps. The, the from one a security that, perspective. The anyway.
1: other one from the security perspective that kind of concerns me is that, you know, security is in, in, integrated in all the, the Sec DevOps stuff. And they have to now be the experts in so many things to you, approve and or deny. And uh, how many... Uh, you know, Think about our industry from this, the, either the red or the blue side or a combination thereof uh, about how many folks really know containerization security from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I mean, these folks are probably few and far between. And it's true. Uh, even the, at the amateur level, to know that some of these things could be an issue and or can effectively invoke change in that SecDevOps process.
0: Many of them work for security vendors today. Yeah. I mean, John Kinsella comes to mind. Matt, I mean, one of the most brilliant people on containerization <coughs> security I've ever spoken with. I want to keep John very close <laughs> to yeah. us. Uh-huh. You know, his knowledge yeah, is it, awesome. But, but how many others. Johns are there I mean there The guys, like the
3: guys yeah. at Signal Sciences, James mm-hmm. Wickett and others. I mean, these guys live this stuff in the trenches In yep. and, and understood the need to bring security and DevOps together in a way that allowed them to streamline the entire process, right? And so there's a number of guys, you're right, Paul, I think, that have become vendors now because Mm -hmm. they saw the challenges of the integration of security into DevOps, and now they're building solutions to try to improve this. So you've got the layered insight guys, you've got the signal sciences guys. I mean, there's others out there in the industry that just saw the need to bring all this stuff together.
0: Yeah, and a lot of those folks aren't security people like we've interviewed on the show before, right? They're people with a development background and ops background that have seen the security problems and have kind of... Delved into this whole security thing, and those are folks we want to bring on our shows. Uh, because this, this is, I mean, it, it, the problem is going to get worse before it gets better, in my opinion. Uh, I think we've got a, a long road ahead of us in securing these environments, even from the operational level. We're not even talking about the app level, right? I mean, signal science is yes, but it uh, beyond that, like, mm-hmm. we're not even talking about the
3: ins and outs of the actual application itself, right. yeah. All right what else do we have uh there was an interesting article on and we covered aspects of this this week with uh the bug bounties right google paid out some big money this year Um, facebook paid out some money this year now microsoft's upping their bounties for for different bugs i mean it's getting interesting to monetize the aspects of these bugs i think Google was three point four million dollars in in twenty eighteen mm-hmm. for bugs. Uh, Facebook paid twenty five thousand dollars for a cross site request forgery bug. Mm. Now you see Microsoft adding up to thirty thousand dollars for these bugs. You know this is it's getting pretty lucrative for researchers. I
1: I, I would still argue that uh, you know many folks that participate in bug bounty stuff. Uh, would say don't quit your day job. I agree, yeah. This, Although, is, this I mean, is potentially it, supplemental income like a, and or something you stumble across and you get a
0: couple hundred bucks in your pocket. I think there's a lot of opportunistic income with respects yeah. to bug bounties. Okay. To Matt's point, though, if you look at it from the flip side, like I think as a bug bounty hunter, you're likely that's not your only job, right? From the other side, from the corporation's perspective, you're paying out a lot of money in bug bounties mm-hmm. now. And it, it, in, in both directions does that does that make sense? Does this model hold up? And I think that there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat when we talk about bug bounties, right? You've got, I think, a private bug bounty, a public bug bounty, different restrictions on your bug bounty, different maturity levels mm-hmm. that are implementing a bug bounty. All that needs to be balanced. The good bug bounty companies like BugCrowd will help you balance that, mm-hmm. right? And, and lead you down the right path, right? I think Casey's built a, a great company that's, largely doing that for customers, right? And guiding them to be like, if you haven't done any security and you're just like, well, I'm going to do a bug bounty program, probably not the best thing uh, to do, right? So it needs to be structured correctly. I think in Google's perspective, probably $3.4 million for Google, probably a pretty good investment in their bug bounty program. Although, I I mean, that's kind of high-level speculation. But if you look at the revenue that Google's bringing in, Mm -hmm. what's at stake for Google for finding fixing and disclosing bugs 3.4 million is probably pretty good. Now, yeah. if you're a much 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 smaller company, 3.4 right, million dollars your is revenue so is nowhere close to Google and you're spending 3.4 million on a bug bounty, probably not the best the best no. case. <clears throat> and if you're spending 100% of your time hunting for bugs, that is almost equivalent to gambling in my in my it, that's kind of what I'm hearing Larry on, yeah. on the street basically is like, yeah, yeah sometimes you get lucky, but not not something I see people taking up full time, but good that the people are doing it on the side. I think there are very positive things from bug bonding programs. I think it's also something that is kind of abused and not designed correctly from from the start. Alright, what else uh do we have in stories? Uh burnout, you guys want to talk about burnout? I don't know. There was a little a blip. <laughs> I, I, I I Dark want Reading has really like registration walled or Oh. they've protected a lot of their content, so I'm not able to read all of their articles, mm. which, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, everyone, is, everyone's going to make money. Everyone's going to have a business, right? Yep. Uh, i like to see more of their articles be public, but they did have one on, on burnout, which I think was one that was part of a, a several-part uh, series, but uh, I think Jack has talked a lot about burnout. I don't think when I read this article, there was much that jumped out at me as mm. being drastically different uh, as to why we suffer from burnout, right? I, I've experienced that recently, yeah. too, and some yep. firewall um, upgrades, but, you know. I, I want to hear uh, Lee's story number
1: two and number four.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: so, Lee, you pick which one goes first, I guess.
2: So, the two. number four was kind of a weird... No. <laughs> Who does number two work okay. for? <laughs> two is before four. I don't know. Okay, so... Stratcom was doing a study on whether they could basically get, they could social engineer members of the military who were been trained not to release OPSEC information and they set up, fake fake Facebook pages and groups and they, they basically pwned these guys. Um, and one of the interesting things they were tracking is like how quickly like Facebook's fake user or uh, duplicate user or inappropriate group stuff shut them down. Some stuff got them in a couple of days. Some stuff never got shut down, even though it was clearly a violation of, of what Facebook would allow. Mm. Um, so it was one of those, you can't count on Facebook to make sure everything's legit. Well, yeah, I know. Not not really a, a news story there, although they are working on getting better at that. You still got to be fairly smart. Um, I think YouTube, uh, uh,
0: I mean, sorry, Facebook Lead does uh, a really... Like puts a lot of effort. I should. Say, I don't want to say they do a good job, but they put a lot of effort into mm-hmm. policing. If you look at a lot of the memes on Facebook, right? They're like, "Yeah, I post this. Someone reports it. I hate you go into Facebook jail." That's happening more and more today on yep. Facebook. I, again, I go back to my you know, story geeks. Even some of the Security Weekly stuff, we ran into problems on on facebook Uh, ever since the election thing happened and the scandal happened with the uh, election on facebook they take it even more seriously Seriously. however you go to youtube and it's a totally different story yeah and the pendulum has kind of swung back and forth our hack naked news i suspect was a suspect that got our channel taken down largely that hasn't happened lately um, and and props to all the security people at both companies that listen to the show. We love mm-hmm. you because <laughs> you yeah. you help us. We help you. You help us. We help each other. It's great. Thank you for that. Hand jobs all around. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean what? Yeah. But on YouTube, um, they've got a serious problem, and I, I see reports from friends and family that say, and I haven't you know validated how true this is, that there are kids video you know, videos yes. that are targeted at kids that are teaching them how to kill themselves and. Like all this all right. nefarious content on YouTube that they're having a really tough time policing yeah. uh, so I, I, I yeah. the yeah. study you referenced Lee I think is very accurate as to how we police this content yeah and 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 that said you know our, our kids have
1: um, unrestricted to their knowledge mm-hmm. uh, access to YouTube uh, they say we tell them that otherwise because you know we know what daddy does for a living daddy can see everything
0: um, right but sure I have a log of everything I do use the circle thing yep it does have <laughs> a YouTube filter on it but again I find it's not effective because how do you know what YouTube video is good and what's not and
1: and Orion uh, our youngest who's five and a half Mm -hmm. and reads better can't read well um, but it's getting better. Um, she does YouTube and she does like the the toy reviews mm. and like the the share family and all this type of stuff. And then every once in a while, I look over and, and I I look over the shoulder very frequently while they're doing stuff. I think shoulder I
0: think shoulder surfing is a great way and, to police YouTube and, today because technical, technically
1: it's very difficult. Right, and the, and spe- and specifically they they get down that YouTube hole, and next thing I know, the little one is watching. Disney spoofs with yeah. Mickey Mouse that are all in Arabic. Yep. And I'm like, what the hell are you watching? I'm like, nope, let's back up like 12 steps here. Back up that YouTube hole and go down somewhere else.
0: Yep. So They do, they get into other ones that are in a different language yep. and they're still watching them. Yeah. I'm like, how are you still watching that? Because they,
1: they're not listening. They're just watching. They're just watching. They were just watching. And, watching. That, and that's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. All the the knockoff Disney stuff in Arabic.
3: Mm. Like, right. Well, and, I mean it, and it the entire comes Asian back culture, to so it, so it can just go sideways yep, pretty Lee? quickly. Lee? well, but
2: like 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 we were saying, uh, it's really tough to police it, let alone set up you know something like YouTube's going to try and automate that policing and
4: mm-hmm.
2: really hard to create the right filters to, to, to trap and contain it. And of course the rate of change is really high, which is you know an awesome success for YouTube, but really a pain if you're trying to trying to police it. Yep. And uh, I'm glad I don't have young kids to try and help figure out what they should and shouldn't be watching. It it it, it must be a royal pain in the ass to get it right these days. Yeah, and, and
1: then, of course, we start talking about, and I'm going you know, to take us off reservation a little bit, we're talking about some of these other platforms. Mm-hmm. Like the 11-year-old asked, Daddy, can I have TikTok? What is that? It's the short, it, it's like a replacement for Vines mm. where they can do funny short videos type mm-hmm. of thing. And I'm like, I don't know a lot about TikTok, but I've seen a little bit and let's start it. And like, she's 11. What kind of videos is she going to post? She's going to post pictures of the cat or videos of the cat
0: or silly silly songs. Yeah, my son around the same age. Your daughter, my son, is around the same age.
1: Exactly. And, uh, you know, she did one. We have a rabbit named Felicia. So by Felicia. Bye Felicia. <laughs> like, so she did one of those, and it was the rabbit in the cage. And hi Felicia, and then next thing you know, bye Felicia, and Felicia's not in the cage. <laughs> My like, like what, one of those. like, what? That's great. And well, hold on, what, but real... but 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 wait, she posted a video the other day that was her taking the cat, and her the channel is named after the cat that she's mm-hmm. playing with, and she's playing with the cat, and she takes the cat, and she picks the cat, and she puts it up in her bunk bed, and the cat looks at her and scowls. She has this is the third video she's posted, and she has 1300 likes on this video. It's awesome. Why
0: enable ads on that? Why, (laughs) but why? But why? Because it's a pussy on the bed or 11 year old girl, or yeah, that's creepy too. Absolutely, like why?
1: Yeah, why?
0: It's, I also think it's amazing how pop culture they learn about pop culture uh-huh. and they come out with things and I'm like, like the whole buy Felicia thing. I'm like, guys, that's from a movie that you're <laughs> you you're, you're not ready to watch and they're also going to like, <clears throat> say hello to my little friend. Apparently that appeared in a lot of YouTube videos. Uh-huh. And I'm like, do you know what movie that's from? They're like, it's from a movie? What are you talking about? Right, that? Yeah. I'm like, all right. Like, uh, uh, yeah. yeah I I ain't got ain't a lot of me. explaining to do now.
4: <laughs> right? <laughs> say <laughs> like,
1: hello to just my little friend. It's
4: <laughs> just not. Anyway.
0: But yeah, this is—it's a terrifying time to be a parent. And uh, I think it's a con- the the best approach. I believe we get asked this all the time, yeah. right? It's a combination of just spending time with your children, being aware of what they're doing, yep. training awareness, teaching them, being yep. with them. That's part of it. Yep. The other part of it is you got to use some technology. In conjunction with that. Yes. The same thing that we do security in our enterprises too, right? We spend time with our users. We try and educate yep. them. But we also have technology yep. that is trying to protect yep. them as well. It's right. the same thing at home. When I, I tell other parents, you know, at Little League and school events, when they talk about iPad usage and uh-huh. inter-programming, I'm like, well, I can just turn the internet off for the whole house. And they're like, how do you do that? I'm like, yeah. well, it's really easy thing. Like, you get the circle thing, and you plug it in, you get an app, and you can control time yep. and uh, how much time they spend, what they're what, And I'm like, it's a great, you yep. know, it's a great yep. measure yep. for that. And and we we take the we take the non technology approach.
1: You don't get screen time until
0: your homework's done. Yeah, and, and it's uh, you got and you got. And, I, I'm believe you got to use both. Yep. Right.
1: And uh, hey. Give me your iPad. You're not doing yes. such and such. Give me your iPad. It goes on the charger. I use.
0: Bo- I physically will take them from them. and I will yep. also put limits on them with yep. with. They, you they, know, they, they technology.
1: Don't, they don't get to take them to their room unless you know they they have previously asked and it's, And you it's have to log everything. Too. And it's. I, and you know what? I don't log. I don't necessarily log anything. Mm. Everything. But they think I do. Yes, that's more important than <laughs> they think I do. Yes. And and I go back to the story that the the oldest daughter got a um uh uh Amazon Fire Stick for her TV for yep. Christmas. And uh said, you know, we're trusting you with what you do and remember what daddy does for a living? Daddy can see everything that you do. I am watching you. And I am watching you. And if you watch bad th- shows, Will know the providers and, and, have, and, have and, gotten. And fifteen minutes later, she installed a game, and I went upstairs. And I'm like, "Hey, how's such and such a game?"
0: He got to give like, them reminders, and right? she's like,
1: "Wait, what?"
0: And in generally, I I think this study's good because it, it also I I think should underscore the fact that the providers themselves are giving parents and administrators more tools to yeah. monitor this kind of stuff as well. In, in like in iOS, all mm-hmm. of a sudden the updates came out. There was uh, it monitors your time, right? Android too yes. it monitors your screen right. time, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And is, uh, Lee, least, sorry, sorry we hijacked that uh, the that total thread about government stuff to turn it into family, but
2: no, no, I think that was really actually much more relevant. Uh, the government stuff is interesting, but the the family stuff is it's what's real to people. It's that's going to be it hits a lot closer to home. Well, and I think that eyes. that
0: leaks into the enterprise too. You know, Security Weekly sharing information and data with a lot of different organizations. Uh, sometimes the it can, the pendulum can swing in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, we want you to watch this video, right? For whatever mm. to approve something or whatever. I right? that's what we do. We create content. Sometimes we like people to to view that content. Sometimes we run into trouble. Like, how are we going to share this with you if everything is blocked? <laughs> I think there's still that IT security department of no <laughs> that is just cutting yeah. off, you know, all of these services. That is kind of scary. Yeah. And, and, uh, that.
1: and I've said this a number of times: is that the security group is not there. Let's put it all right. Let me rephrase: the security group should not be there to say no. The security group should be there to say, no, but we can do these things if you are willing to <laughs> risk accept these types of things. Right. So it's it's not a, no, it's a, this is not a good idea. This is a no, but this is the type of things you're opening yourself up to and someone else needs to understand the problem and sign off what they're, they're risk accepting.
0: Right. It's still a problem today. I mean, Matt, we see it. The number of vendors today that, are attacking the problem of how do we share files securely, right? How do we, if we're going to share a file, how do we, or video, how do we do that in a secure manner that can be controlled and monitored by by IT? And I get it. You know, we've all lived that role before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's uh, somewhat of a, a, a race to, I think, who's going to be the, you know, provider of these uh, applications that allow you to control other Applications. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see these aspects, right? Um, who do we trust? Who don't we trust? Who's going to be this um, layer that allows us to do this? Um, that's just one aspect. And it, it, and it, you know, this is interesting. It ties into the other article that we wanted from Lee, which is this whole concept of Splunk's change in direction on what? Russian yeah. headquartered mm. companies. I mean, Think about that, right? I mean, here's an organization that has said, "Look, we're not going to continue to sell solutions to literally a whole country." Um, yeah. Talk about trust. I mean, that's crazy. Lee, well, I, I well, I was reading this and it was
2: kind of interesting, and I was thinking, are they really? I mean, what's what's behind this? Um, for example, there's a list of embargoed countries that we're not supposed to do business with as, as you in the as the U.S. It's what. North Korea, I, I,
3: North Korea, Libya. Korea,
2: there's Cuba, Iran, Sudan, yeah. Syria. There's like five. And Russia is not one of those five, hmm. for better or for for whatever reason. And I'm thinking, why Russia? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of political. Is this political hype response, or is there actually a real threat that they're trying to contain? Or is it a um, response to the political aspects of it, too? Yeah, put it, uh,
1: the political hype response. Yeah, yeah. If you talk to yeah. a lot of
0: enterprises mm-hmm. that are doing business internationally, there's a lot of interesting things that go on when, let's say you set up a corporate office in some other country. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where do the laws uh, you know, kind of cross, yep. cross world? Like what, what do you have to conform to? What do you say no to? Or as in the case with Splunk, what were the conditions that you know were met that Splunk finally said it's not worth doing business, business in, this, anymore. in this country. I actually, yeah. not knowing any of the details, but just speculatively, yeah. I agree with Splunk. I, I, if you're going to pull out of that country, something had to have happened that there was some chain of events that came to right. a head and they were like look either we're able to do this or we're pulling out and russia was like no you've got to do this again pure speculation on my mm-hmm. part and spunk was like no we're 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 pulling out and i think it's that's again a risk equation that the company's going through and yep. you know that happens some companies may choose not to do business in china yep. or you know <clears throat> spin up a different company and do business in china and
3: and, and i've seen the reverse Mm. case of this right i've seen companies walk away from russian companies like kaspersky as part of their embedding strategy right so this is the first time i've seen it on the flip side taking a position with a, a country what i've traditionally seen is certain vendors saying look Okay, I get it. You're in Russia, but we're, we've decided we're not going to embed your technology into our solutions. And I've seen that with K- Kaspersky in a couple different cases. This is a little mm-hmm. interesting, but where they basically said, "Look, if you're headquartered in Russia, we're not going to sell you any solutions." This is kind of the flip side of that, which I really haven't seen up until this announcement. With- well, from- and you've seen it even with some of our allies.
0: Well, ones that I would consider, I would consider Israel an ally. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. Checkpoint was going to acquire Sourcefire, there was a lot of speculation as to why that was, you know, yeah. deal wasn't going to go through. largely, it was centered around that the government ran Checkpoint firewalls and Checkpoint was headquartered in Israel. But that's an ally, and so again, we don't know all of the details that go into all of these decisions, mm-hmm. uh, and so we can only speculate, which is a lot of fun and a great part of our job today is we get to speculate.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, with, it's with, interesting. With alcohol. With alcohol. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh. It helps the flo- thoughts
3: come more quickly. Or, or like loosely. Help- slowly. Or the conspiracies yes. to come more quickly, depending right. on which side we're we on. Like my they, alien- come more,
1: they come more loosely anyways.
3: <laughs> like my alien conspiracy. <laughs> yes. Theories. Yes.
0: <laughs> in any case.
1: So with that, Paul, what do you think?
0: What else is going on in the news? Anything worth talking about? Or are we calling it?
1: I I say we call it.
0: All right. Let's call Th- it. There's
1: lots to work, talk more about, but we could be here all night.
0: We could be. Thank you, everyone, uh, Matt and Lee and everyone else who was on tonight's show, Larry especially. And thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Larry, Yeah, take us out.
1: Over and out.